Laura. It's Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Nick Jimenez. I'm Scott Corelli. Today, we are continuing our miniseries on the X-Men franchise with 2011's prequel reboot, X-Men First Class. And we have a guest joining us to talk about Nazi hunting, groovy mutations, and questionable character deaths is academic and fellow podcaster Joe Dorowski. Joe, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. And I love the X-Men, so I'm very happy to talk about this film. Yeah. So, like, uh, talk to us about your your sort of journey with the X-Men as a, as a fan. So, I know that the X-Men was the very first comic book I ever read. Uh, it was in a grocery store. My mom let me and my brother grab a comic book from the spinner rack back in the days where grocery stores might have spinner racks. And I grabbed an X-Men one because I had heard someone on a Nickelodeon game show say that that was their favorite comic book franchise. That, like, this, <laughs> like, you know, when they would tell a little bit about themselves, the thing was like, oh, I love the X-Men comic books. I'm like, oh, well, I'll just grab this one. And from that single comic book, I eventually ended up on the path where I wrote my doctoral dissertation on race and gender in the X-Men uh, comic book franchise. So it's uh, yeah. been a, a long path that involves both a hobby and a career for me. What, so what is it that you like so much about the X-Men? The comic book that I grabbed was like the final part of a multi-comic story. I didn't know who these characters were. I didn't know what the storyline chapters had been. And I just didn't care. Like all of a sudden I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, who are all these characters? It was just such a fascinating mix of, I, I was eight or nine when I picked it up, but just a, a great mix of costumes and different powers and all these character interactions that just immediately fascinated me, even though I had no idea uh, what was happening. And then as an academic, as someone who, you know, writes about the narratives that are found in comic book stories, I love the long form storytelling and how you can see the evolution across decades for these these storylines that are spanning dozens of creators and hundreds and even thousands of issues. But there's this this narrative through line, but it evolves and ebbs and flows with the concerns of a society, you know, with, with uh, you know, d different cultural markers. Like you can you can see shifts happening in the kinds of stories that are being told. And the X-Men with that inherent mutant metaphor is a really fascinating text to dig into with that because it is uh, so deliberately and explicitly topical in, in the issues that it wants to address and how successfully or unsuccessfully it does at various points uh, in its history. But to see those kind of like pivot points uh, happen as it, you know, that, that align with changes in, in the culture of the people who are creating and also the people who are going to be consuming these stories. What about when these X-Men movies started coming out? What were your thoughts on these on these movies and, and First Class in particular? 
Um, I remember, well, with the the first X-Men film, just hoping it was going to be good. Because this was, you know, now it feels really strange to say Hollywood had no faith in superheroes. But Hollywood had no faith in superheroes. And so there was just this desperation for it to be good. And then the X-Men film franchise, as I am sure you know, covering in this podcast, is this fascinating mix of quality uh, as it moves from, from feature to feature. But knowing that First Class was going to be a retro t- take and even just seeing like they, that they actually did the costumes like like i remember just seeing oh they're doing the blue and yellow <laughs> that is mm-hmm. that's a bold take and it just worked uh I, I was really intrigued to see how they would capture the 1960s feel in in looking back to this era so after what felt like maybe let's say some missteps <laughs> with a few previous chapters in the franchise uh i had some renewed hope go- going into x-men first class as kind of like you said a, like you know a prequel slash kind of reboot for the franchise mm-hmm. nick do you remember seeing first class for the first time i do i do this was the the summer of 2011 mm-hmm. you and i are now friends yes in this timeline, yes, we finally know. Well, we we had already started knowing each other with uh, that's true, Wolverine. Wolverine. Yeah, just barely, but yes. <laughs> uh, and I I remember seeing this. I think like at midnight back in my hometown from college, mm-hmm. and being really excited because it's weird. We're covering this week by week, but it's already been like you know almost half a decade since Last Stand, mm-hmm. and since there was like a really really good X Men movie. Yeah. And it, it was an exciting time when this movie came out to be an X fan. It felt like a shot of adrenaline mm-hmm. that like, oh, maybe this franchise can keep up with this like second phase of this arms race that's about to happen. Yeah. With like, you know, this is also the summer of Thor and Captain America. Mm-hmm. All nerds across the world were like holding their breath about whether the Avengers experiment was going to work out. Right. I, I saw this with my very new girlfriend at the time. Now my fiance, Bethany. And uh, we saw this together and I just remember having a really great time and not expecting how good it was. Like I went into it hopeful because it was like, oh, well, I like to kick ass. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that this guy does a good job. And I just remember leaving very impressed with um, with the movie and the way that it was done and all of the 60s stuff and the team dynamics and the Kirby costumes and you know all of that stuff I just I just really had a great time and I was really hopeful for the future of of the X-Men as a franchise in in movies after this one it's a good one and I think that you know now that it's over we look back and this is definitely one of the high points. There's a lot of peaks and valleys over the course of this franchise. And, you know, you're standing on the peak of first class and you you can look straight over X-Men Origins and X3 <laughs> and see X2 in the distance, you know, eight years prior. Yeah, or it almost becomes just like whoever you're chatting with at the comic book store. Yeah. They're going to have like, oh, well, my personal favorite's X2 or mm-hmm. my personal favorite's first class. Mm-hmm. And then you have like Logan if you look the other direction. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really, really really great movie and i think it's also run through some ebbs and flows in terms of people really loving it and then backlash happening against it and then people remembering it again and remembering it fondly Mm -hmm. and then the backlash of the backlash and it just (laughs) it's been one of those movies where it's sort of been on a journey in terms of people's thoughts about it have your thoughts evolved like that at all with it i think so I, i i know for me I kind of have gone back and forth with this movie over the decade mm-hmm. of like, oh, it's the best one or oh, but still X-Men 2 mm-hmm. and revisiting it 
the, all of these movies for the podcast. Mm-hmm. I think this has aged the best of the movies so far. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Especially X-Men 2 when we were talking about it, Joe. It's still like a really solid action movie. But like Scott was pointing out all these like, well, they're not really the X-Men for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of the character dynamics aren't really paid off in X2, mm-hmm. even though everything is like sold as the movie on its own. Whereas like this is pretty close to a perfect X-Men movie. Yeah. So, Joe, before Nick starts to dive into the development of this movie, we have a question that we got to ask you. And that is, who's your favorite mutant and why? It it does change, like, depending on what my, in some ways, my academic focus is. Um, you mm. know, so um, I often am working on, like, essay collections on different superheroes, and they kind of become my favorite while I'm, like, digging deep in. And right now, I am working on an essay on Storm, and so she's one of my favorites, which I, I think she'd always be in, like, the top five that I list for favorite X-Men characters. I, I think Storm's always going to be uh, coming up, but because I'm, like, diving deep for this particular project, um, she's, she's definitely one that has been on my mind more and kind of reminded me she's a really awesome character <laughs> yeah what is it about storm that you like so much it's a power set that feels so natural to have but no one can ever do it better than what what storm has right you know the, mm-hmm. this ability to control the weather and she has such a fantastic visual presentation in terms of any variety of the costumes that they have she's one that they're able to really really nail but there's also something that's so visually dynamic about like her with the wind whipping around and you know f- flying through the air and then also yeah. her her role on the team is she's a leader but she's a different leader than scott like you know cyclops as you know is is the team leader but then it's really like storm is is the next one and yes there are other people who have had that role and then even in like pop culture history she is both the first person of color to lead a superhero team in the comic book world and also the first woman maybe legion of superheroes may have had a woman like as a team leader for for like an issue or two prior but when she became the x-men's team leader like she was the team leader for for years and so she has a really significant role in terms of pop culture history but just as a character design and power set like it all comes together really well for her yeah i respect it she's a great character i was gonna say like respect seems to be like a word that feels right when it comes to storm (laughs) yeah is she brings such reverence out of fans of the comics Mm -hmm. and creators of like Mm -hmm. old storm yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) Well, take us on a journey about first class, Nick. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this one is timeline-wise, it kind of zigs through the past couple of episodes that we talked about. Yeah. Uh, As I said in Last Stand, several prequels were being developed simultaneously Mm -hmm. around the time of Last Stand, one of those being X-Men Origins Wolverine. Lauren Shuler Donner was one of the first people to bring up the idea of doing a younger X-Men movie, Mm -hmm. like a prequel, on the set of X2, Mm -hmm. while at the same time that Wolverine was being developed uh zach penn was developing a quote prequel that wasn't wolverine or magneto couldn't figure out what the plot was or if it was just like young x-men oh sure but that kind of stalled in november of 2004 fox asked a screenwriter named sheldon turner to comb the backlogs of the marvel archives or the x-men archives Mm -hmm. to say like hey Screenwriter Sheldon Turner, do you see anything in here that you might be able to write a screenplay about? Because we're trying to keep this train of rolling. And he emerged with an idea of a Magneto prequel mm-hmm. that he described as an X-Men movie mixed with The Pianist. Whoa. This would have like gone through him being like Eric, experiencing the camps, living through that. Charles Xavier would have been a liberator of the camps. 
Mm-hmm. Presumably in like the military, American, because mm-hmm. he's American, right? Yeah. Uh, no, he's British, right? He's, he's, he's British. Isn't Patrick Stewart British? I'm there well, in England in this. In yeah. This movie. yeah. For, for the films, yeah. he's British because yeah. okay. you know you can't not cast Patrick Stewart if you have that option as yeah. Yeah. as Professor X. But in the, in the comics, he's American. Yeah. In the way that Kelsey Grammer is American, but as a kid, you think he's from England because he's so fancy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in uh, April of 2007. David S. Goyer was attached to direct the script by Sheldon Turner. But then, as we brought up in the, with the Wolverine episode last week, the 2007-2008 writer strike happened. Right. And everything went tits. Right. And things kind of stalled. Uh, Wolverine was released to critical lambasting, would you say? Mm-hmm. Pretty raked over the coals by the fandom. Made a pretty penny. Mm-hmm. Definitely wasn't like a financial bomb, but I think it stalled enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And the Magneto movie kind of stalled with it and ultimately fell apart. Simon Kinberg, screenwriter of X3, approached Fox with the first class comic book. I actually read some of it, getting prepped for it. I can't think of the writer, but it's like the OG team. Right. Oh, I, I remember who was writing it, but it's not coming to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's fun. It's a great like book fair comic. Right. Mm-hmm. That was. Yeah. 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 I remember this. Yeah. I was thinking of season one, mm-hmm. X-Men season one, which came out after this or right. the same summer and after as after the this. John Byrne hidden years. But it's. Yeah. <laughs> those yeah. are all like but, kind of like a let's explore the original X-Men team. Yeah. Yeah. But first class came out in like a digest format, like a little mini book where each issue is very self-contained. And mm-hmm. there's one issue where it's like, before we visit your house, Warren, let's stop and visit my old pal, Dr. Kurt Connors. Right, right. Yeah. It was Jeff Parker was the, the writer. Jeff, Jeff Parker, Parker. Right. And, and Roger Cruz was the, the artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Kinberg approaches Fox with this book, but says that he doesn't want to follow it very closely. He just likes the idea of going back and visiting the, quote, first class of Xavier's school. An interesting quote, he thought the comic was too similar to Twilight and John Hughes movies, and we can't have an X-Men movie with that vibe. <laughs> well, you know, what movie studio would want to chase Twilight at this point in history, right? You know, <laughs> This was Simon Kinberg that said that? Yeah, that was a real uh, ice dagger to my heart. Yikes. When, when I read si- that. Simon, buddy, do you know what you're talking about? Like, he, <laughs> we, the thing is, he's on this franchise, kind of like the rest of the road, and yeah. it's like, literally, that's nice. exactly what this franchise needs. Yeah. yeah. We don't want teen angst. <laughs> <laughs> in an like... X-Men book? God forbid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have, I think we've gotten marginally better, but I think in retrospect, a lot of the Twilight hate is just like our culture's aversion to things that are like feminine. Yeah. Or liked by girls, whether yeah. it's like One Direction or Backstreet Boys. Or I Twilight. don't even think, you know what? I, I would say the John Hughes thing is valid. Like him being like, I don't want this to feel like John Hughes. I think that's valid because that's not X-Men to me. That's mm-hmm. Spider-Man, mm-hmm. which they then did with Homecoming. But Twilight, that's X-Men. Like, that's yeah. the melodrama, the, oh, my God, he hates me so much. You know, I, I feel like I'm going to die. That's X-Men. Yeah, soap, soap operas with powers. Right. Yeah, yeah. So so that's what we need is, like, a YA adaptation yeah, of, like, X-Men. It, it reminded me a lot of what Sony initially was trying to do with the Amazing Spider-Man movies, mm-hmm. which was, like, we want this to be Twilight. Let's shoot this for, like, 80, 90 million, mm-hmm. focus on the school stuff, and then, you know, Franchise Fever took over. And that movie became something very different. But right. yeah, the idea of like a late 2000s, early 2010s teen X-Men movie, mm-hmm. especially not to jump too far ahead, but I think the biggest legacy of this movie, without a doubt, is Cherrick, the shipping, a relationship between Eric and, and Charles. Right. And I think it kind of opened up a whole new avenue of fandom for these movies mm-hmm. of young girls or teenage girls. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't know. Anyway, that just yeah, it, no, it, yeah, yeah. I no, was just like what could have what could have been. That's absolutely valid. Yeah, and they were like, this movie will happen if Wolverine is successful. Mm-hmm. Wolverine was successful, so things move forward in two thousand and eight. Screenwriter, television phenom Josh Schwartz, yes, was hired to write a, a draft of X Men First Class. Creator of the OC, mm-hmm. developer Ch- of Gossip Girl, Chuck, Chuck, right? Creator of Chuck, co-creator of Chuck. This is how big of a nerd I am. I remember going into my school bathroom and looking at my phone and reading Josh Schwartz is going to write an X-Men first class movie and like running to the bathroom stall and like missing class so I could like read the slash film story. Yeah. Because that just sounded like such my shit. Yep. Yep. I remember us talking about it when when it was announced because you were like, Scott, did you see this? Because you knew I was like the other person who was like big Josh Schwartz fan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the, the, The OC. So yeah, the idea of like the guy who wrote the OC... Then doing an X Men movie just sounded bonkers. Again, TNX. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really seemed like a really great idea. In retrospect, looking at what he did with Runaways, uh, I almost wonder if that was not a good idea, and maybe the script that he did turn out in, which I'm assuming they just didn't care for. Well, it's interesting, Joe. Do you have any? Were you an OC fan or a Josh Schwartz fan back in the day? Um, I I knew of his stuff, but the, I I knew him more through Chuck than than the OC. But I mean, there's that genre of you know, kind of early embracing of geek culture is is part of what he's recognized for, right? right. At the time, like Seth Cohen talking about like Brian Michael Bendis like, right. blew my mind mm-hmm. yep. watching TV. Absolutely. So there was a rumor that he was attached to direct. Uh, I read an article where he was quoted that that didn't happen, but he would have said yes anyway, because he's like, I wouldn't want that to be my first movie. Yeah. Brian Singer never really fully left the Fox X-Men orbit. Mm-hmm. I was pretty surprised when you mentioned that he was attached or briefly attached to direct Wolverine last week, Scott. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what this was. Uh, Josh Schwartz wrote a script and then Fox offered the movie to Brian Singer. Mm. That's a really weird combination. I just made a face. Yeah, Scott, uh, that's Scott a weird a... combination of creators. <laughs> yeah, because it's interesting because as we've charted on this miniseries so far... Brian Singer's been, if you take away the fact that his movies have been making money, mm-hmm. dude's a liability. Yeah. Yeah. Head wounds, lawsuits. Yeah. Yeah. A- abuse, trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond the fact that those are two tastes that don't taste good together, like Josh Schwartz and Brian Singer, that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. But like on top of that, you're going to give Brian Singer a movie with an entirely young, underage cast. Seems like a mistake. Seems like a huge mistake. Right. And it's like we're getting closer to the kind of the cultural turning point that's going to happen. Yeah. But but yeah, we're still at a point where this dude is just like fully getting offered jobs. And uh, the biggest conflict of him directing this is another movie he was developing, Jack the Giant Killer. Oh. That he was directing. I remember that existing. Yeah. It it, it would come out someday. It was like his Don Quixote for a while, right? Where it was like, it was going to, it was, it took a while for that to happen. So he gets Josh Schwartz's script. Mm -hmm. And as Scott said, it wasn't a taste that went well together. Yeah. Brian Singer was like, this isn't the kind of movie I want to make. This isn't what I, what I want to do. And Josh Schwartz was like, cool. I get it. It was a gig. Didn't seem to hold any ill will towards the process. Yeah. So Brian Singer hires a screenwriter named Jamie Moss whose most recent credit was that Keanu Reeves, David Ayer movie, Street Kings. 
Oh. Remember that? Remember Street Kings? I do not. Even films I never intend to see, I, I t- tend to retain a pretty good memory that these <laughs> yeah, things exist, yeah. and I have no memory of that movie. Yeah. I'm not convinced this movie exists. <laughs> I remember, like, trailers for it, because I was just going to the movies every weekend. Not like now. But, um, but yeah, I've also never seen Street Kings. But so, Stinger writes a treatment to X-Men First Class, and then passes the ball to Jamie Moss. Mm-hmm. I say, Jamie Moss, I want you to write this script while I'm getting ready to shoot Jack the Giant Killer. Jamie Moss writes a screenplay based off of Singer's treatment and sends it to Fox. And Fox freaking flipped for this script. Oh. They loved it. Okay. They were like, this isn't only the next X-Men prequel. This is the new trilogy. Oh. This could be a whole franchise. Okay. We love this. Let's shoot this now. Whoa. Okay. And Singer's like, I'm shooting Jack the Giant Killer. Uh, I'll I, I'll produce it because like I, I helped write it, but like no, I want to shoot Jack the Giant Killer. Okay, which leaves Fox without a director. Yeah, and and eventually Brian Singer without a movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Jack the Giant eventually Slayer would come out like in 2013. R- right. Yeah. With Ewan McGregor as like the bad guy. Right. I saw it. I and saw it on Nicholas, an airplane. Yeah, it's Nicholas kind of an airplane Holt, right? Yeah, Nicholas Holt. The yeah, beast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, cool. So. Our old friend, the WGA, comes into play in this episode. Mm -hmm. According to IMDb, Sheldon Turner is credited as a screenwriter for X-Men First Class, Uh him being the screenwriter of the Magneto movie. Mm -hmm. Both Brian Singer and X-Men First Class eventual director, Matthew Vaughn, say that they never read the script. Got it. Uh, So this this is a case of, like with Avengers, the first Avengers movie. Zach Penn has a story by credit on that first Avengers movie because the arbitration, the WGA arbitration people didn't realize that the reason that the movie is about the Avengers fighting an invasion that Loki is controlling is because that's the first issue of Avengers. <laughs> they don't realize that it's an adaptation and that's why the story is the same. And so they're they're crediting someone for you know, quote unquote, creating a story, despite the fact not a single word of Zach Penn's Avengers script is in there. And do you remember when Joe Quesada read the Avengers script for the first time? I don't. And he made it a big deal on like the thing. He printed out, it was Zach Penn's script. And he was like, I'm reading a script for the Avengers. This is amazing. And then no one talked about it again because everyone hated that script. But he ended up getting credit through the arbitration because it's Avengers fighting oh, Loki. <laughs> yeah. Because they're like, well, look, he created all of these things, yeah. Loki and the, thi- and they're like, no, he didn't create any of those things. Those were from the comics. <laughs> and I feel like this is a, a situation exactly like that. Well, yeah, well, right, right on the money. So the, the WGA goes through the arbitration process mm-hmm. and finds among other things, an evil Nazi doctor. Mm. Which, um, with Magneto. I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, Matthew Vaughn early on, not to jump ahead, but wanted to set the movie minutes after the first X-Men movie. Mm-hmm. Like, let's see what happens to Magneto after that. And so the WJ is like, that is this Magneto script that Sheldon Turner wrote. Oh, boy. There's a quote from Brian Singer. Where he's like, I know where my ideas come from. And none of them came from that script. I never read it. Matthew Vaughn was quoted as saying the WJ were fuckwits. But ultimately, neither Jamie Moss nor Josh Schwartz are credited for their work on the X-Men First Class project. But Jane Goldman, Matthew Vaughn, and Sheldon Turner are. Whoa. God, that sucks. Yeah. That really sucks. Ashley Miller and Zach Stentz 
Right. The screenwriters of Thor mm-hmm. were then brought on to do a pass mm-hmm. right before Matthew Vaughn and Jane Goldman in an interview with, I think, Den of Geek. Matthew Vaughn was quoted as saying, uh, yeah, so with Thor, they replaced me and Jane and made the movie worse. And with this, we replaced them and made the movie better. Isn't it so interesting that they're like this? We love this script. This is we're going to shoot this script. Hire new screenwriters to rewrite it. Like what? What? Like what? Why did you hire people again? It's a running theme on the show, Joe. Yeah, <laughs> we love it. Time to rewrite it. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, we love I, this I, franchise. This we, we we you know multi-film deal right now. Uh, let's let's rewrite it all. I hire a totally new team. There's this thing that I always hear about from writers where they're just like, yeah, if you are on a movie on a project and you write that script, if it doesn't go into production within two months of you finishing writing it everyone working on the movie is going to get tired of your script and mistake the fact their familiarity with it with it being old and tired Mm -hmm. and because it's old and tired to them Mm -hmm. and so that's why they bring in fresh writers because they're like well none of this is working anymore no it is all working you're just tired of looking (laughs) at it it yeah you're not excited because you've been looking at it for so long um and that's how you go through all of these all of these writers that happens a lot apparently it's it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so so that happens. The Simon Kingbird contacts Matthew Vaughn after uh, his work in Kick Ass. Yeah. Like Scott mentioned, that was his kind of big. I'm not just. I mean, he directed Lair Cake, mm-hmm. he directed Stardust, mm-hmm. but Kick Ass was like an even bigger hit than those two movies. And it was like, oh, this isn't just like the producer of Guy Ritchie movies. Yeah. This is Matthew Vaughn. So and then Matthew Vaughn had also been attached to direct X Men First Class, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, X Men The Last Stand. Right. Mm. And. Leaving that project had a lot to do with why he chose to come back. Vaughn was quoted as saying that he felt there was unfinished business. When he was attached to Last Stand, he had only done Layer Cake, right? Yes. Okay, so then after Last Stand, he goes and does Stardust and Kick-Ass, and now he's back, and he's like, okay, now I'm ready to make an X-Men movie. Yeah, so what happened with Last Stand was he wrote the script with Kinberg and Zach Penn in like six days, Mm -hmm. storyboarded everything was pre-vising sequences with his team mm-hmm. and then was staring down the barrel of an 11th month production shoot. Less 11 than, months? Less than a year. Whoa. Between what he was doing right now and the movie coming out and him walking the red carpet at Hollywood. Oh, boy. And he was like, he said like an idiot is his quote, but I kind of fully see where he's at. He's mm-hmm. like, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I can't deliver this movie, the movie that I'm literally working on in that timetable so he walked. Which there's that mix of like, know thyself, and it's good that he, he boarded, but also, like, you'll figure it out. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of, that, yeah, he was like, you know, knowing what I know now, now that I've made two big movies, I probably could have done it. Right. And ironically, he had a very similar timetable. <laughs> the, the making of this movie is a literal mad dash, mm-hmm. but we'll get to that. So yeah, he was like, I have unfinished business. I've made Stardust and Kick-Ass. I'm ready. Let's do this. Especially when he heard what this script was. He was like, I thought they were screwing with me because it's everything I've ever wanted to do. It's I get to make an X-Men movie again. Finally, mm-hmm. I get to make a James Bond movie mm-hmm. and I get to make like a John Frankenheimer nuclear thriller. But yeah, right? not just a James Bond th- movie, but like a 1960s absurd technology. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Re- uh, you, retro futuristic technology kind of thing. For yeah. sure. You only live twice is <laughs> yeah. like the one that I, I saw coming up again and again, like listed as a reference. Uh, he said he wanted to shoot something so good that the broccolis would regret never hiring him. <laughs> Wow. To make a bond. Yep. 
And then he would later continue that streak with Kingsman. <laughs> <laughs> so he said uh, him and Goldman as writing partners came in and took this script and just put their stamp all over it. Yeah. And filled it with kind of their energy, right. their style, which I think if you're a fan of their movies kind of shines through. Yeah, it definitely it feels like a wholesome kick ass. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, this movie. Things that were cut mm-hmm. uh, included the character Sunspot. Okay. For special effects budget reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. A love triangle between Eric, Moira, and Charles was cut. Because oh. <laughs> they Was it because they had too many other points in these love <laughs> quadrangles that they're kind of half developing but not fully exploring? They, yeah, we can't have three. Yeah, three, that, that's too many. <laughs> and this was interesting. I did not know this. There was an entire dream sequence that was filmed and pre-vised, mm. described by Vaughn as a war. <laughs> Whoa. Where presumably Emma Frost, Charles is like trying to read someone's mind and there was going to be like revolving rooms and crazy optical effects and like dream stuff. And then one day Matthew Vaughn sits down with his popcorn and soda and watches Inception. Oh. And he's like, God damn it. That sucks. This is good. It's going to look like we're ripping them off. As, yeah. as you were describing it, I was imagining Inception. Like, yeah. <laughs> exactly what you were describing. That, I mean, that that sucks. I understand why he made that decision. That's the right. Absolutely. It happens the right to writers decision. all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it sucks because it leaves us with an Emma Frost that is. Yeah. Womp womp. Uh, you know? Drain. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely falls under the camp of X-Men movie characters where it's like Emma Frost in name only. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. I found a bunch of really cool quotes that we'll get into kind of like through production. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I just want to really stress that this was announced. It was like exactly like Last Stand. Matthew Vaughn was like, that was the irony is I shied away from this timetable. And now here I am with like even less of a timetable. Oh, boy. To, to get this movie shot. This movie had five cinematographers what yes only one was credited which is another case of matthew vaughn was like fucking figure that one out why is only one guy credited oh my god the cinematographer that is credited john matheson Mm -hmm. according to vaughn shot about half of the movie he came in like halfway through the shoot finished up but yeah five dps why did that happen because they had availability speed Okay. Too, you know, like too many crews going like we got yeah you, too, you're filming too many over there. crews going at once yeah. yeah wow and what vaughn said what was interesting is like he was like yeah that was horrifying but it was trial by fire because his words he kind of leaned on his dp in his other movies mm-hmm. and in this one it was really him because it was basically like the way a dp is on tv i imagine right of like what do you want man like tell me where to go yeah and so vaughn was like i had nothing but myself to rely on yeah what do i want this to look like so that it didn't look like five people shot it oh boy which to a miraculous credit it does not no yeah that's nuts wow also as a result of the accelerated filming process one two three four five six uh, effects houses were hired to bring the movie to life and let's go over them right now (laughs) you got rhythm and hues doing emma frost mystique and angel Mm. you got cinecyte doing Azazel, the Cerebro effects, and like environment effects. Mm -hmm. So like water, smoke, Mm -hmm. fire. Luma Pictures handled the Banshee effects, Havoc, and Darwin. The Moving Picture Company covered Beast and everything on the yacht. Okay. The tornado on the yacht, I guess. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. The yacht explosion. Okay. And uh, the character of Riptide. Digital Domain handled Shaw's powers, like the physics of like him absorbing kinetic energy. Okay. And good old Weta Digital handled everything on Cuba. 
Okay. All right. That is so much. Making sure that all of this wasn't a giant clusterfuck was special effects legend John Dykstra, mm-hmm. creator of the lightsaber, mm-hmm. OG Star Wars crew. Mm-hmm. And it was basically John Dykstra's job to like coordinate all of this mm-hmm. and make sure that it was like happening and getting done on time and that it was all, you know. Absolute legend. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, in, in multiple interviews, Vaughn's like, yeah, he's the reason that this looks as good as it does. Yeah. Vaughn apparently had a really great time making this. Oh, that's good. He was like, I loved working with Fox. Fox was great. I loved working with Tom Rothman. Mm -hmm. Tom Rothman was great. Brian Singer was the perfect producer. He was like, I hate when people tell me what to do, so I'm not going to tell you what to do. And the whole time he was like, I can't believe Tom Rothman has this bad reputation. He just must work with a lot of shit filmmakers. Oh, boy. Well, there it is. Very interesting. Let's talk about First Class. So we open back... In 1944, in Poland, right where we left off, we do like a little bit of a recreation of the scene that opened this franchise. And then we go, as you mentioned earlier, Nick, to the moments following that opening scene of uh, Eric manifesting his magnetism powers. And it's pretty seamless. Yeah, it is pretty seamless. And then we meet our villain of the piece, Sebastian Shaw. Sebastian Shaw, now a Nazi scientist, played by... Kevin Bacon. Uh, Kevin Bacon, right? Kevin Bacon was not Vaughn's original choice for the role. Oh. He first offered it to his good friend Colin Firth. Hmm. Interesting. I'm trying to imagine that. Yeah. I like that, actually. Mm-hmm. That's a... Specifically Colin Firth as Sebastian Shaw. Like this version of Sebastian Shaw. Uh, yeah. Well, well, but this version would be slightly different, I think, if it was Colin Firth. I feel like he'd have the more really, the foppish. Kinda... Yeah, he'd be a little more foppish, probably. <laughs> he'd wear his Pride and Prejudice fluffy shirt. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, they talked a lot about how to have it not be too like that. Uh-huh. Of like make him like, oh, James Bond villain playboy. Sure. Yeah. And not so much like cape and mustache. Sure. But yeah. as far as the Colin Firth of it all, this was like pre King speech. Mm-hmm. So they were like Colin Firth, and he was like, "Trust me." And they were like, "You already have too many Brits, cast an American." Oh, why are studios like this? Why do they do stuff like that? <laughs> oh no, <laughs> like no one cares when they're watching the movie. <laughs> yeah. Just, oh boy. Anyway, so yeah, but I, I think he's great in this. It's a hell of a f- intro villain scene. Is this his first big villain role? Because he's done this a few times now. Because he did this in Super, he was a villain. Uh, R.I.P.D. Um, R.I.P.D. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think Who this can was, forget? <laughs> I think this was like one of the first, because like, yeah, Tremors, of course. But yeah, I can't think of another like genre Kevin Bacon movie. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so we get the scene. We introduce the idea of the coin, using his powers to move the coin, and Sebastian Shaw trying to stress out Eric so that mm-hmm. it'll trigger a response. And uh, in doing so, he uh, shoots his mother in the head in front of him. Yeah. Yeah. Immediately, this is one of the best ones. Mm-hmm. Just off the strength of that first scene. Yeah. it's a, Yeah, because it's immediately like, oh, this movie cares about these characters more than the last few. I agree. Like, I love this scene. But when I was rewatching this, which I hadn't watched it for years, I felt like the beginning of the film was a little disjointed. Like, it was just bouncing around so many little vignettes mm-hmm. that I was having trouble 
like getting a handle on the story. Mm-hmm. And, and so like by pieces, like I agree with absolutely what you're saying, but as a whole, like this opening until we actually get into what the plot is for this film, I was like, I, it, it wasn't landing right. as strongly as I remember it landing in the theater. Yeah. And, and this is one of those things that you were saying about like that people's relationships with the film kind of ebbs and flows. Yeah. I, I think I had a different reaction to the opening this time than I remember having the first time I saw for it. For sure. And because, like, you know, we have the, the gates and then Shaw's office, and then we have Charles and Raven. Right, right. And mm-hmm. that's kind of our cold open. And, you know, this movie has a really interesting tone. Because, yeah, like, the Nazi stuff, it goes from, you know, Brian Singer played totally straight to this slightly arch, yeah, slightly, like, mustache twirly, but it's still Auschwitz. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing with Matthew Vaughn and it's it is the thing that I like about him as a director is that he is a lot more arch than most directors nowadays. Mm-hmm. You can tell that he's having fun behind the camera. Sometimes he makes a movie like Kingsman 2 and you're like maybe you're having too much fun um and you need to take a step back. But yeah. but in general that's a vibe about like his movies that I like a lot. And mm-hmm. he's not uh, afraid of not being subtle. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I do kind of like that. So okay, so we go to Westchester, 1944 as well. So this is like a meanwhile kind of situation. Mm-hmm. How old is Xavier in this scene? Would you say? <sighs> Joe, you have well, children. Wait, we, <laughs> you know what kids look yeah, like. Yeah, you know, you know, you you probably yeah. have a better handle on what kids look like at a certain age. I watched it a few days ago and I don't remember like zeroing it, but my memory, I, I'd say it's supposed to be like nine or ten. Yeah, right? that's kind of what my like yeah. eight to ten range is okay. my mm-hmm. feeling. So on our first episode, if you remember, our guest Wally, I hate to call you out, Wally. I know you're not going to listen to this, so it's fine. But I think he, he listens to the show. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll see if he responds to this. He said that, if you remember, Xavier is 17 years old in this movie. But if this is 1944 and he is supposed to be, let's just round up and say 10 years old, then by mm-hmm. 1962, when the rest of the movie takes place, bare minimum, he is... What, 18 years older than 10. So he's 28. Right. Which is much more likely for a, uh, finishing a doctor. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, his argument was that, like, he's 17 and is, you know, Xavier. So that's why he's getting his doctorate so early. But, yeah, I don't I don't think that's... I've never had that reading. No, I don't think that's the case. I don't think he is 17. I don't... I don't... I don't... I'm not sure where he was coming from with that. <laughs> Gosh. Damn it. I can't... I can't picture him... Not Wally, uh, Charles. Like, oh. I can't picture young Charles. I, but yeah, definitely younger than six, seventeen. In order to be 17, he would have to have been born the following year. Like, so, so after this yeah, scene. after this scene. So, no, it's not possible. Oh, you mean, you mean James McAvoy 17? Yes, no. that's what he yeah, was always James saying. James McAvoy is no way. Yeah. yeah, James McAvoy is like... Yeah, mid-20s. Yeah. yeah. You know, v- vague mid-20s, early professional yeah, life. Absolutely. <laughs> Somewhere in the 24 to 29 range is like yeah. where mm-hmm. he's at, I feel like. Because yeah. he seems in this first scene... Because you meet Young Raven, mm-hmm. by the way, just for our listeners' peace of mind. Uh, Young Raven was played by Morgan Lilly. The bodysuit was like totally slip on, and it only took an hour, so she didn't have like a mental friggin' breakdown, breakdown like yeah. Rebecca Romain. Okay, fair enough. I remember as a, I remember watching. I almost said as a kid. I remember watching it for the first time and being like, "God, they made the little kid go through the whole, the whole thing." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. But yeah, um, they look like maybe three, four years apart. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and and they say specifically in this that Raven's power is going to mess the way she ages. Right, right. Because 
one, you can't tell how old she is when she's in mystique mode, in in blue mode. But and she can make herself look however she feels like mm-hmm. when she because she literally mm-hmm. and later in the movie she makes herself look like Rebecca yeah. Romaine so like she can make herself look however old <laughs> yeah. she wants to look right so. oh and Hank's like not to jump too far ahead but Hank yeah. is like oh you're gonna age super slow that's pretty cool yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I, I just double checked James McAvoy was 32 when this film was was yeah made, so. yeah so there's no way he's playing younger than 25 like well I mean I wouldn't put it outside of Hollywood <laughs> and try sure it, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we have Raven disguising herself as uh, Charles's mom. Mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. And Charles's first act being like, it's I'll protect you, little baby. You're my baby now. Yeah. Yeah. Going to keep secrets from you and mess with your mind. <laughs> so then we go to 1962 in Geneva. Yes. And Eric is searching for Klaus Schmidt, a.k.a. Um, Kevin Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, he goes to a bank and he has that conversation with the with the banker, which is a pretty cool scene. Yeah. And just in general, this is our introduction to young Magneto. This blew the, the, the this was like the coolest shit ever. Yeah. When I, I mean, saw it in 2011. He's so good in this. How, so okay. how did he get involved? How did he get cast in this? So it's interesting. They knew right away or Vaughn knew right away that he wanted McAvoy. McAvoy was top of the list. OK. So he said, McAvoy, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to have you read with every Eric that we bring in because I want this to be Butch and Sundance. Yeah. And so like, I need you to, I need you to, if they, if they're not bouncing off you, it doesn't work. And like within minutes of like Fossbender coming in and their back and forth, their chemistry, he was like, boom. And yeah, Vaughn's like thesis or message to Fossbender as far as what he wanted was Eric in this movie is Bond. If Bond didn't need gadgets. Wow. Mm. That's a really cool take. Yeah. And if you watch the movie, even like his first scene where he like tortures the bank guy by with like the teeth filling, it's all like Bond is a bastard Mm -hmm. moves, Mm -hmm. but it's like he doesn't need a gun. He doesn't need need to punch anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I thought multiple times in this, I was like, wow, Fassbender would be a really good Bond. And now I know why. Yeah. I think he he was definitely (laughs) in that vortex of names. For the Daniel Craig, (laughs) you know, yeah. Yeah. Name a British actor who has not been in the James Bond vortex at some point. But like everything, even like the the outfit that he's wearing in this scene, the white Mm. crisp shirt and like the pants. I was like, that's the coolest dude ever, which is what you want out of Bond. In retrospect, it is really funny that Matthew Vaughn really wanted to make a Bond movie like his whole career to the Mm. point where he was like, oh, I'll just make Kingsman and that'll be my Bond movie. But the fact that he wanted to make a Bond movie so bad and the movie that broke Daniel Craig into the the sphere in order to get the audition right. to be Bond was Layer Cake, Cake, his first movie. Wow. So I just think that's really interesting. Yeah, there's there's actually a there's a fun story where he was like coaching Daniel Craig mm-hmm. post Casino Royale, like, oh fuck him, Daniel. I don't know what they're talking about. They're gonna fucking love you. Yeah. And that's like kind of what he was able to coach some of his actors on this movie. Oh, okay. Of like, right. I know how that's that. cool. I remember this came out a couple years after uh, Inglorious Bastards, mm-hmm. and it has that just—it's just like a great scene. Yeah, that has a beginning, and mm-hmm. it, like you leave, you walk out of that scene, and you're like, I know this guy. Yeah, let's just say I'm Frankenstein's mm-hmm. monster. Yeah, God, so good. We go to Cambridge, and we go to a bar where Raven <laughs> and Charles are drinking. Yeah, and, well, she kind of cockblocks uh, Charles a little. Yeah, bit. having a good time, and and Charles is using this like groovy mutation thing this to was, like pick up chicks. This was delightful. Yeah. 
the the choice of a media like no he was kind of like a lame randy kind of horn dog mm-hmm. in the 60s yeah i love that and mcavoy's immediately totally fills that role yeah yeah and uh it works when like the audience expectation of charles xavier coming from like the patrick stewart version it's doing this um like reaction to that version of charles xavier and saying no this is gonna be the story of how he becomes that person he is not that person as a young man he's not that mature and focused and invested in in the issues he's like clearly brilliant but also still like a young man yeah has a young man appetite Mm -hmm. it's also interesting because you know xavier in the early x-men books written by stan lee was a bit of a dog as well like oh really yeah he thought he was in love with marvel girl uh yeah, there's there's one panel that's infamous yeah. of it, it is really only in that one panel and then never addressed again until like onslaught years later. <laughs> Where some you know, another writer was reading these other ones. But Stanley like put that in a panel very explicitly, like, I can never tell her I'm in love with her. And, and, and it was just one of those like, we're doing all the soap opera tropes, but it, it comes across as so creepy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so like I almost wonder if him being a horn dog is a little bit of a callback to that. And also, right. if you're a young man and you have the power to read minds. What would you use it for? Right. You know, yeah. like before, like, you know, learning things like morals, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, Vaughn and Goldman went through a lot of the old stuff, a lot yeah. of the old issues. There was even going to be like a joke where they were going to call themselves the Merry Mutants mm-hmm. because he knew that was mm-hmm. like a rejected title. But mm-hmm. yeah, and even like his relationship with Raven, the movie kind of lets it be like, how on the level is this? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Because, yeah, we have that follow-up conversation where they're back home. Am I pretty? Yeah, and she's like, am I pretty? And he, like, won't look at her and is, like, being, like, real weird about about it. And also just very uncomfortable with the idea of, like, having a romantic relationship with her. Even though she seems to Mm -hmm. be, like, kind of into the idea of them being like, yeah, we're not romantic right now, but it'll happen in the future. Like, we're meant to be together. It's kind of like the vibe that you get from her. Of like, of like, who are the two Bradys that were kind of had vibes? Greg and Marsha? Was it Greg and right? Marsha? I think that's right. But yeah, like, they have that kind of vibe or like a Dawson, Joey kind of vibe, yeah. you know? Charles it seems to be kind of in kind of a state of denial. Yeah. Like, he can clearly tell, mm-hmm. like, oh, she kind of has this, like, crush on me from childhood. Yeah. But I'm going to, like, not address it just going to avoid it one thing about this film that i don't know if it's a strength or weakness or just playing into the soap opera tropes which the x-men fully are are soap opera like i'm not trying to call it out by saying it's a soap opera like i don't know where any of those romances are supposed to be heading (laughs) (laughs) like there's hints of so many different romances with raven at the center of most of them and it it, like nothing gets resolved and it's more like these pieces are on the board if someone wants to play with these in a future i was going to say watching the future films does not help Clear, yeah, clear yeah. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it, it was like, we're, we're going to set this all up, but we don't quite know where, where this is all yeah. supposed to go. But you also get the vibe that Xavier is the type of guy who knows that she has a crush on him and is also using that to his advantage to manipulate her in certain ways and get what he wants Yeah, in, yeah. in mm-hmm. like, you know, platonic ways, but also is using what he knows about her feelings for him to manipulate her to get, you know. Whatever she's it is like his first disciple. Yeah. Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. we see like, oh, this is a guy who would like pull little bits out of Jean Grey's mind mm-hmm. for the sake of not having mm-hmm. a, a difficult conversation. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's a jerk. And yeah, <laughs> Professor Xavier is a jerk. I've said it once. I'll say it again. <laughs> uh, so just in general, like Mystique's arc in this is really interesting because it, it all goes back to that conversation she has with Nightcrawler next to of like, oh, could you imagine if we looked like them, that's the thing we shouldn't have to. Right. Like, 
in order to be respected, we shouldn't have to look like them. And this is her learning that lesson. And I think it's a really poignant, interesting character arc for Mystique. And what I like about it is it establishes this perfect dichotomy between Xavier and Magneto mm-hmm. in terms of their different philosophies on on everything. Xavier's whole thing is like, we have to fit in in order to be accepted so that we don't have to like start a war or whatever. And Magneto was like, no, screw that. Like, we should just... You know, we, yeah. they should just accept us. It's, it's not just, about diluting ourselves for their comfort. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that's really interesting in using her as the sort of focal point of those two... Sort of metronome. Yeah. Of like, oh, you, yeah. It's really well-structured and just like a really, really good kind of three-way character study. It's really good. So, moving on to Las Vegas, we're introduced to Moira, right. who looks a lot different than the last time that we saw her in the post credit scene of X, X3. <laughs> this is Rose Byrne. Yes. Rose Byrne. God, I love Rose Byrne. This was like the dawn of me being like, oh, Rose Byrne's the shit. Yeah. Because like, uh, Get Him to the Greek was like the year before. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. No, I love, I love Rose Byrne. And the thing that I love the most about Rose Byrne as an actress is that you can literally put her in anything and she always works. Like any genre, any kind of role. You want her to be the villain in a horror movie? She could probably do that. You want her to be the heroine in a romantic comedy? She can absolutely do that. And it's just like you can put her in anything. And she, I think she has one of those things that a lot of actors don't have, which is she instantly knows what project she's in and how she should play it to fit in. And I think that's the reason why sometimes she doesn't stand out a lot in certain things but then when you go back and you look at her it's kind of like judy greer where you go back and you look at her career she's been there the whole time and she's been there the whole time and she rules in everything to say i think one thing that is interesting about this film is they grab so many parts of the the x-men mythology but they're not like beholden to the idea of fidelity so like mortimer mctaggart as a government agent that's not the mortimer mctaggart yeah. from the comics at all um but it it doesn't like bother me to, to the point i'm sure there were some people who it probably bothered them because they want the films to be exactly what the comics are and that's just never going to happen uh but uh the name Moira mctaggart is so important to the x-men lore this was a way to bring her in Mm -hmm. and have her involved in the action whereas the Moira mctaggart in the comics if she was you know true to the what the comics is she's staring at a computer screen an awful lot right (laughs) and just you know look at a spinning dna helixes you know that that's who she is they like they pay service to her connection with charles it's Mm -hmm. again kind of a weird like soap opera thing that there comes in and out of the movie She's totally in this movie living in that like almost bond Roger Moore kind of can't bond, but you can still buy her as mm-hmm. like this weary, haggard woman in this like chauvinistic yeah. man's world of the 60s. She's got like qualities of the new sort of action oriented money penny that's been in the Daniel Craig movies mm-hmm. and also just a straight up Bond girl. So, like, she has mm-hmm. kind of both qualities kind of merged into a single thing because mm-hmm. there's definitely, you know, some cheesecake here. You get the campy, like, I have to disguise myself as, like, a go-go girl. Right. And, like, stand there all like, hey, gorgeous, when are you going to? Yeah. I'm the president of the. Yeah. But then she's doing it. And the guy's like, Whoa, like, her partner is like, well, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm going to work. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like. I have a little gun in my bag. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's like that thing where it's, you know. You, it's that interesting level of of um, feminism you see in movies a lot. Mm-hmm. Like before, they're sort of figuring out the layers of it, and really, and and mm-hmm. you know, 
Sure. And, and she, she retains her agency through all of this. Right. But it's like also like we need an excuse to get her in her underwear. And so like. Yeah. It's a little male gazy. This whole yeah, absolutely it is. Absolutely. She's literally infiltrating the male gaze. Like that's what this. <laughs> that's what this scene is. Uh, and we also meet Emma Frost in this moment, right? We sure do. I love January Jones. Uh-huh. I think she's super underrated in Mad Men. Uh-huh. She's one of my favorite Instagram follows. Uh-huh. I don't know where to credit why this doesn't work i don't know either i i think it's too easy of a cast because they're like oh mad men 60s boom blonde 60s boom there we go easy easiest casting job we ever had it's interesting (laughs) like i i have read a lot of emma frost for this series Mm -hmm. between gifted and phoenix saga and so i kind of she was kind of in my mind yeah yeah they don't give her any of that like arched eyebrow mad scientist mastermind no and i don't think that january jones could really pull that off i really like her when she's goofy like she's in um uh, last man on earth she's so good in last man on earth she's so funny Mm -hmm. and great has a lot of personality but like she has nothing to do in these movies she's basically a prop i don't know why they chose to do emma frost and not just say well it's the 60s so why don't we just have a white queen like we have the Hellfire Club. We need to have a white queen. It doesn't have to be Emma Frost. Mm. We can do another another character as a white queen, and that's fine. What do you think, Joe, about the, the yeah. Emma Frost of it all? I think Emma Frost became famous in some ways because of the male gaze things that we were just talking sure. about a little bit. Um, but what has made the character endure and become a fan favorite is so much in the attitude and like the arch mm. delivery. And like she will take anyone down verbally as well as physically and, and psychically. She can take them down. But but her, her verbal archness is such a core part of her personality. And that's just not here. No. Like I can't remember a line that's delivered in the film no. off the top of my head from Emma Frost. And it feels like every line she should say should be dripping with so much attitude that you cannot forget. Yeah, yeah. and she's just so... The, the problem is that she has to be a lapdog to Sebastian Shaw in order mm-hmm. for the movie to kind of work. Because then it's like, if, if she's not, there's too many moving parts at that point. And I think it starts to get rickety. Um, if she it, is also like this Machiavelli. Right, yeah. right. Like backseat Machiavellian, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Which is what she should be. But but yeah, it would overly complicate the movie. But I do think, I think the Grant Morrison run of New X-Men is like the thing that kind of put her character like on the map. In terms of like, mm-hmm. this is Emma Frost and this is what she's going to be like in everything forever. And it rules. Uh, and that's actually not the only thing that they bring in from that run, because that's where Angel comes from, obviously, which we'll learn mm-hmm. about later. But yeah, it's it's unfortunate because Emma Frost is one of my favorite X-Men characters. I mean, she's probably in my top three because I love her personality and I love what she brings to the team of like this sort of chaos agent. Mm-hmm. And, she's and, so valuable to mutant kind that yes. sometimes they're like, well, we need her. Right. And specifically a, a chaos agent to the interpersonal relationships of everyone in the X-Men. Right. And, and it's and it's she is usually the one causing a lot of the strife, more soap opera stuff. Yeah, all of the soap opera mm-hmm. stuff, which you 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 want, you absolutely <laughs> want that stuff in X Men, and she is the instigator of so much of it that she becomes one of my favorite characters as a result. And it has nothing to do with like any of the cheesecakey stuff yeah. that she. And like, mm-hmm. if you're if you're not a if you were like me and like didn't really know who Emma Frost was when you watched this in 2011, yeah, she's like yeah, kind of obviously that kind of archetypal like you know in every bond movie at the time there was like the female villain yep uh on a top right or pussy galore right yeah because like typical bond movie 
Bond sleeps with two people. There's the Bond girl, and then there's the the, the, the villain. villain. The villain girl. The girl villain. <laughs> the one who lives and the one who dies. Yeah, exactly. The one who lives and the one who dies. Yes, 100%. And she is the one who dies. That's absolutely her role in this, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's not great. So Emma Frost takes the army guy to the like Shaw's base, right? And this is where we get full-on Bond villain Shaw with like the velvet tuxedo. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and we get introduced to, to him as Sebastian Shaw now. Now he's not Klaus Schmidt. He's Sebastian I'm Klaus Shaw. Schmidt. Yeah. And yeah, we don't really learn what the Hellfire Club is other than just like a 60s go-go club mm-hmm. kind of thing, um which is fine. But yeah, this whole thing you're you learning Riptide, right? Yeah. So you're just basically learning that Sebastian Shaw wants control of uh nuclear missiles. He she, he's like I want you to move them here. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not asking, I'm telling you. <laughs> I mean, the the very first X Men comic is rooted in Magneto trying to take over nuclear missile a nuclear missile base. Yeah. So the, there is this nod to that 1960s X Men era and also the Cuban Missile Crisis, like in all these things. It's just you know some of the pieces are getting shifted right, right. Uh, for the story that they right. want to tell. Is there? I mean, I guess we'll figure out when we get there. But like, I know that Days of Future Past has a historical event that it's focused around. Mm. Does Apocalypse or do they just? So I saw Apocalypse. I couldn't. Yeah, die. I, I, I can't. I, I think they shoehorn some <laughs> nuclear bullshit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like Berlin that Wall is, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay. Expert Apocalypse is just one of those strange, like black hole movies. Like I know I went and saw it, but I remember absolutely nothing mm. about Apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not convinced that anyone who made that movie remembers anything about that movie. So all of that happens. The soldier guy is like i'm not gonna do it and then, what the hell did you put in my drink yeah and then gets teleported away who is the actor who plays that soldier guy because he's one of those oh, great like i've seen you in everything i think uh God, i want to say his name is noah emmerich mm. he, he's just one of those those yeah, guys absolutely. actors where it's like oh you're you're showing up all over yeah. the place there's a couple of those in usually film. in like a little general's outfit with some stars mm-hmm. yeah. yep <laughs> then we come to argentina yeah and we get a very maybe the most famous scene in this movie which is Nazi hunter Magneto, and it yeah absolutely rules. Yeah, I mean, I actually thought is. we had already talked about it. No, no, this is this is the Argentina scene. the The bank scene is earlier. The knife, but this yeah. is this is the one with the knife. Yeah, and... this is the one with the knife, and it okay. just it's so good. Yeah, copy paste everything I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've appreciated it more in our discussion where I said like the opening of this film just felt a bit disjointed to me. The film almost could begin with this scene, mm. and mm. like everything would still make sense. Yeah. Like, we have a Nazi hunter, Magneto, we all know from, you know, even if you didn't know, you now know. You, you could pick up from context that he's a survivor yeah. of Auschwitz. And, and, like, everything that we that came before, now I appreciate it a little more on the character building stuff that you've identified for it. But as far as, like, the story, mm-hmm. for me, this is where the movie really starts. Sure. And it's like, okay, here sure, we go. Sure, sure. I think, too, I think what I really like about this and about Fassbender's performance as Magneto is, like, when you look at Ian McKellen's Magneto and he's doing Magneto stuff. And he's moving his hands around. He is very fluid with the way that he does everything. He sticks his hands out and he thinks about it. And then he moves a little bit or he's pulling the stuff out of the, like the metal out of the guy's blood. Yeah, he's a li- very wizard-like. And then Fastbender is, he it's, it's swift movements. It's a lot of snaps with his, the way that he moves his hands. A little more jerky. Yeah, a little more right. jerky. And it's because he's working from a place of anger. Whereas... Mm-hmm. Xavier teaches him how to do the fluid movements and do go from a place of control. Yeah, which is then what he uses at the end of the movie to turn the missiles around. And and I mm-hmm. so I just I love the arc of just like 
the way that yeah. he uses his powers in the movie. And yeah, Fassbender, where it is like, like yeah. Bond, like a blunt instrument. Yeah. Where he's like, I can move the knife here, throw it over here. Yeah. You, I can take your gun. Yeah. Do we know if they had done a Magneto Origins film? Would it have been Magneto Nazi Hunter? Because that's a film I could watch. I'm pretty sure that was mostly the plan. You know who doesn't know? Yeah. Brian Singer and Matthew Vaughn. Because <laughs> they didn't read it. Because <laughs> <laughs> this sequence like convinces me. We could have a franchise yeah. of Magneto just hunting different Nazis. And I think it could Yeah, work. but this definitely is like, it's a scene right out of Inglorious Bastards. And which Fassbender starred in, so he should know. Mm-hmm. And and that the end of that scene where he stabs that guy in the hand, with a hand the second time and then does that thing where his hair is disheveled and he just sort of flips it back yeah i think about that a lot Iconic. i just he just that, yeah. that fastbender move of just like the huh, like flip back with the hair oh man yeah. it's so cool so full of swag god and he's so cool danger yeah he's yeah fucking cool oh man and then uh yeah moira meets xavier and he tries and, the he tries the groovy mutation line yep yep and she asks for help oh well first he's like we get wasted. him we get him draining a beer. Yeah. And it's awesome. But yeah, he is absolutely wasted uh, using the groovy mutation lines. And she's just like, okay, yeah, all right, this is all great. I actually need your help. Like, I'm not. Oh, hold on. And, then he, and then, he, but then he is able to be like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Let me concentrate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. McAvoy Xavier is so interesting because he's kind of a prick. You can kind of tell he thinks he's better than everyone. Mm-hmm. But then he's also like really polite. Yeah. But, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Shaw's in Miami. He's got a yacht. Yeah, in Miami. Is. I loved I, I, everything we just said about Emma Frost. Totally valid. Yeah, I fucking love his little Doctor Evil squad. Where like <laughs> yeah. when they steal the submarine, they all have a crew position on the submarine. Yes, where it's almost like the Batman movie. Yeah. Oh man, it's really good. Are, have we met the Hellfire Club? Yeah, 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 yeah. We met everybody. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a fun story. We have Azazel, mm-hmm. the teleporting mutant who is in the comics Nightcrawler's dad. Right. And Mystique is his mother. Yes. yes. Right. So when it- well, I will just say one of my most least favorite comic storylines yeah. ever is the whole Azazel Mystique thing. <laughs> like stretch of X-Men comics. But then comics. when <laughs> Azazel is in this and Mystique is in this, everyone was like, oh, they're going to hook up and have Nightcrawler. I remember that being everyone was just like oh well obviously that's gonna happen mm-hmm. both of his parents are in this yeah. movie brian right? singer had other ideas mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah apparently <laughs> playing azazel is one of matthew vaughn's like good luck charms mm-hmm. uh, actor jason fleming yeah who shows up in a bunch of stuff he really wanted jason fleming in this movie and jason fleming was like look man I'm not gonna lie like i just got done i did not have a fun time making this movie clash of the titans where I wore this big heavy like makeup prosthetics so i just i don't want to do that and matthew vaughn in the interview said like I just straight up lied to him. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you're Azazel. You're going to be in the sequels. Oh, you're... boy. And then he got the script. Like, oh. what the f- I'm red. Sorry. And yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's a bummer. <laughs> so I don't I don't know if that's like Matthew Vaughn taking the piss or if that's actually. I think you were going to say he lied to him and said there's no makeup for this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's where you were going with that lie. Uh, it's a different level lie. <laughs> but it's like, oh, you're you're part of the franchise yeah, now. Man. You're set. <laughs> bummer. Moira pulls Xavier and Raven into a meeting to like basically introduce this boardroom to mutants who all believe that it's a magic trick at first until Mystique stands up and does her thing. And then they're all freaked out. Kill him. Yeah. And then we get, is it Oliver Platt? We do. We get Oliver Platt. Oliver Platt, whose character is unnamed. Yes. His name, his character's name is Man in Suit. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so originally, Matthew Vaughn wanted to cast another one of his good luck charms, actor-director Dexter Fletcher. 
as man in suit as as man in suit yeah and then uh, again fox was like too, too many, many brits. brits too many brits so he was <laughs> like okay what about oliver platt yeah and they were like you're not gonna get oliver platt to play man in suit <laughs> and he was like why like well you don't <laughs> offer named actors and he was like you know what i hate it when you're watching a movie and you're like totally in and then one guy is like sir they're outside waiting for you and you're just out of the movie yeah everyone should be good even the little parts yeah so he shot his shot mm-hmm. he asked oliver platt and he was like hell yeah i have kids i'll be in an x-men movie that's awesome he's in the movie a lot it's weird that he doesn't have a character <laughs> he's name. never like my name is agent thomas <laughs> yeah. he's yeah he's in the movie for us a... it feels like there should be a name placard on his yeah. desk or something that we could see well, <laughs> he, he's, he's not movie. even allowed to sit at the table with everyone else he's right. sitting in the back <laughs> yeah he's in the movie for a solid 45 minutes to an hour you know it's mm-hmm. crazy that he doesn't have a name it's so weird <laughs> he's good in this dope he's having fun yeah he's really good in this casting him though does give you the shock of of his character's death you're like oh they killed all yeah because because you uh, if you're a savvy film viewer like you see enough of these you, you, when you see certain actors you're like well that one's not dying <laughs> he's you gonna know there right? and it's like oh and he died and it wasn't even a big deal it just yeah happened. yeah <laughs> yeah it increases the shock effect and then we get our first big action sequence of the movie i would say all the other ones were kind of minor action right. sequences but this is the this is the submarine this is magneto meeting xavier mm-hmm. trying to stop the sub trying to kill shaw and the whole thing frost blocking xavier all all of that stuff and Eric believing that he was the only mute. Yeah, I was going to say that whole sequence. It's just so much more romantic than I remember it being. Yeah. Charles jumps in and saves Eric. Yeah. And has this moment of this isn't worth you losing your life. Right. Stay with me. And yeah, like, like I thought I was alone. Like, you're not alone, Eric. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, too, because he doesn't even know that Shaw's a mutant. Oh, I didn't. He yeah. just, he's a Nazi scientist. He's the guy who killed his mom. He has no idea that, mm-hmm. that you know, yeah. he just thinks he's special, that he has this magnet power and that's it. He doesn't know anything about mutants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really, really great sequence. And, and yeah, definitely that, you know, Charles just sort of holding Eric in his arms and telling him not to give up. It's like, well, there's all the shippers. That's where that came from. It's that moment right there. Well, and a few more. To yeah. Come oh, to. definitely, definitely. But yeah, I mean, was, they really the are. Of it for they sure. really are like the emotional. Almost made the worst pun ever. The emotional core of the movie. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say spine. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh no! <laughs> but yeah, it they have they're just they're great, and it's one of the few. It's like the perfect version of a prequel mm-hmm. because it's as epic and meaningful as you would hope it is. Like going back and watching like two thousand X Men. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and what I like about it is that they have no business with each other. It's not like Magneto is the Moira character in this where it's like oh i've heard about a guy named xavier and i have to go talk to him you know it's not that it's that they both have their own stuff they're doing Mm -hmm. right and then they those two things cross i wasn't looking for a relationship right now (laughs) exactly and then that's how they meet (laughs) and i it's really really well written in terms of the sort of prequelitis that you get in a lot of these prequels i mean we just watched x-men origins wolverine you know, that had a lot of that prequelitis. And this has kind of none of it, I think. Mm. I can't think of anything mm. in this that feels shoehorned. There's no, like, here's your special jacket. Yeah, the only thing that feels kind of shoehorned is Shaw's helmet. That is the Magneto helmet. That's the only thing. But I think it still mostly works. Like, you kind of just, like, roll with it and accept it for what it is. I don't like the literal final shot of this movie. Sure, yeah. But we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get to it. So the next thing that happens is they meet Hank McCoy. 
Yes, we do. Yes. And Xavier accidentally outs him as a mutant. <laughs> it's a great little scene. It is. Of like the allegory. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think McAvoy's uh, like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like you buy it. Yeah. So interestingly, Nicholas Holt was not the first choice for Hank McCoy. Wouldn't have been mine either. So yeah. Originally, it was offered to actor Benjamin Walker. Right. Who uh, I'm a big fan of. And he turned down this Abraham movie. Lincoln Vampire Hunter, right? Yes. Yes. But before Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, he was Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which was a, a musical that was briefly on Broadway mm-hmm. that I fucking love. And it's like pop punk Hamilton. Like okay. Five years before Hamilton. Gotcha. With gotcha. kind of more of like a tongue in cheek. You know, sometimes you have to take the initiative. Sometimes your whole family dies of cholera. Uh, <laughs> And so, <laughs> and so Benjamin Walker's like, look, I'm kind of like the heart of this show. We've been workshopping it. It's this little show that could, I, I gotta, I gotta stick to my guns. I gotta make this happen. Mm-hmm. And it sucks. Cause like, if you look at Benjamin Walker, he is like Jack Kirby, Stanley, J- uh, Hank McCoy. Yeah. The chiseled, I, I, you know? Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. Beast is my favorite mutant. I love Beast. Yeah. I absolutely That's a strong I, choice. I adore Beast. I any anytime he shows up in a comic, it makes me happy. Nicholas Holst isn't Beast. And his Beast at the end of this is definitely not Beast. I yeah. it's just not yeah. it doesn't feel right. It just mm-hmm. And the thing is, there's nothing I don't have anything against Nicholas Holt. I think he's perfectly charming in this movie. I really do. I think he's really doing a good job. He creates a character. It it there's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. It's just like I want a husky beast. Like I yeah. want my Hank to be a little husky. That's that's his vibe. Um, He's a little. I actually think Kelsey Grammer was perfect yeah. as Beast. Like uh-huh. when I heard that casting, I'm like checks every box I want for yeah. Beast. Even if no one else can imagine Kelsey Grammer as a superhero, yeah. so uh, I can imagine him as that superhero. Yeah. So Walker couldn't do the project. Vaughn approaches Nicholas Holt. Holt was like, "Oh my gosh, this is actually perfect for me. I had a great time making this movie called Clash of the Titans." I... <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing the action. I didn't have to wear any makeup. I just got to do like I really want to keep doing this. So I, I'd love to be Hank McCoy. <laughs> oh wow, that's so interesting. I mean, yeah, it's he, he creates a fine character. It's just not Hank McCoy to me. He really leans mm-hmm. hard on the Peter Parker glasses pushing up. Yeah, oh, gee whiz. Yeah, that's why Wait, which... he, he's a perfect Reed Richards. Like mm-hmm. if you cast Nicholas Holt as Reed Richards, I'd be like hell yeah. Sign me up. Absolutely. But Hank McCoy, it just doesn't doesn't track for me. Like, Hank McCoy isn't that slender. He's just not. He's mm-hmm. he's heavier and, guy. And also, I think, I mean, this is not Nicholas Holt's fault. No. Like, just for the writing of Hank McCoy, I prefer the more tongue-in-cheek ego, egotistical, almost like a Ben Franklin. Yeah. Like, every quote you hear from Ben Franklin, it should it could also come out of, uh, you know, Hank McCoy's yes. mouth. And this Hank McCoy gets played or was written as... A little more aw shucks reserved. Adorkable. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of similar to what with Emma Frost, like Hank McCoy in name only. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, un- unfortunately, this is kind of the most personality that Hank McCoy gets in this trilogy because I think yeah. he only gets drier and drier. Yeah. As Holt. I don't know. I think he's a great actor. I mean, like. He's trying to do a werewolf. Yeah, I mean, we'll, talk, we'll, we'll talk about what Beast looks like. Yeah, but no, I just mean in the future movies because he can switch back and forth. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. The, oh, yeah. That's yeah. the time in the makeup chair gets less and less. Right, right. Oh boy, he's got but, those crazy feet that he hangs upside down on. He sure does. Raven is into it. Yeah, that's the other thing too. Is like his the design of his feet doesn't seem right either to me. 
He just had big feet, right? Like that was his thing. Well, he can like pick yeah. stuff up with it. Well, right? yeah, in the comics, like he just had large hands and large feet originally. Like he didn't have the blue fur right. at all. So that, this is true to the comics. And he also in the comics he got the blue fur from drinking a potion right. he made himself uh, without studying it enough. Right, right. <laughs> he just took it, and and so like all, all there's some really fun nods yeah. to the the comic book version that I really do enjoy, but it does, it doesn't quite all land yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of uh, Shaw's Magneto helmet, this is where it gets introduced. He uses it to block out any kind of psychic interference. That's why he wears it. Yeah, they deduce after the boat attack, like, oh, they have a telepath too. Right, right. Which is uh, my least favorite, like, prequelitis thing in the movie is the, is this Magneto helmet, I think. Okay. I don't know. I don't like the idea that it comes from Sebastian Shaw. I don't like the idea that Magneto is wearing the helmet of his oppressor and the murderer of his mother. Right. It feels mm-hmm. weird to me. I yeah, know. I wonder if th- if it's literally this helmet in Days of Future Past. I'm pretty sure he is. It looks like he's wearing a totally different helmet at the end of the movie. He's he's like uh, you know, he pimped his right. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like he's, he's adorned it. A yeah, little he bit gave more. it a purple hue <laughs> versus like the red hue that it has. And, and and he's he's got like the comic book little crest at right. the at the center right. at yeah, the end, right? Yeah. And that's not there in the as yeah. much in the Shaw. Yeah, it is kind of the most Wolverine special jacket that it gets. Yeah. Yeah. But then at the same time, well, as we'll see later, I do like the payoff of the helmet at the end of right. the movie. Yeah. I love that. So it's sort of like, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, David maybe it balances out. I don't know. So, yeah. So we're introduced to the sort of like idea of a, of a mystique beast romance, which is interesting. And uh, has that ever been in the comics ever? Not that I'm aware of. No. Not that I'm aware of, but also there's so many <laughs> I'm not willing to commit to the fact that it yeah. never has but appeared on a couple of book page. It, it works, I think, in the in just like this singular. You kind of get what they see in each other mm-hmm. of like, mm-hmm. oh, we both pass. Have, yeah, yeah. And right. have different mm-hmm. relationships with the idea that we can pass. Right. Where Hank sees it as a blessing mm-hmm. and Raven has kind of carries more guilt about it. Right, right. Yeah, I, it, again, it just feels a little muddy to me that she has this flirtation with Beast and with Magneto and with Xavier, and like it, it yeah, it's, a, it's not great for her character. It feels like she's getting passed around sometimes, like by the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. But then at the same time, I also feel like it's it's true to her character as depicted in the movie in terms of her like trying to figure out what her angle is that's true it's as a her mutant. she's mm-hmm. seeking out each of these relationships yeah does it feel like they're coming it like she's looking for something in these relationships with these different people yeah yeah i feel like the fact that they're all men is is the problem like i wish one of them was was like a female character so that you could get that sort of vibe a little bit more but the fact that they're all sort of non-platonic is i think part of the problem but uh, in general, I like what it does for her character in terms of her character. Her identity crisis. Yeah, 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 exactly. The identity crisis. I like that a lot. Yeah, speaking of which, you know, of course, Eric walks by and was like, I wouldn't change it at all and keep walking. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And she's look like, at that oh. fit. Yeah. Um, look at that turtleneck. <laughs> so so then we're introduced to Cerebro Mark One. Yeah. Government invention. Yeah. Yeah, and invented by Hank McCoy. Yeah. Um, I think that's a lot of fun. I like the way that it looks. I like Charles using it for the first time and sort of like working through it and figuring out how it works. And then... Don't touch my hair. Yeah, right. That's the yellow spandex line mm-hmm. of this movie for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little sequelitis uh, throwaway yeah. joke. Yeah, yeah. easier if I could shave your hair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I do, I like the look of it. Like when we're in his head seeing what he sees, how it does look different. It looks older. Than yes. 
you know, the version of Cerebro we it's see like in cloudy. the movies. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question about Cerebro. Sure. Did I see Storm in there? Or am I crazy? Am I thinking of another X-Men movie? You know, I didn't... I I, I know notice. there's one... It must be this one. I'm doing the same thing where I remember like that flash yeah. of someone who's, who's Storm. It must she have had, been like, this the white one. Hair. Uh, I can't remember it in this rewatch. But yeah, I think we do see just a glimpse. Okay, if we do, it's broken. Um, As he's kind of like cycle, cycling through the mutants. Because I remember thinking, see. like, is he seeing the future? Because it also looked like he saw Scott. Right. Yeah. Well, as discussed, the timeline makes <laughs> no <shit>. sense. <laughs> I just want to say about Cerebro, I love that they just went all in on absurd tech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we're not going to apologize. We are just doing the weird helmet. Right. Yeah. Uh, glowing, glowing tubes. Yeah. Uh, you know, analog, not digital, the, you know, 1960s side tech slash fantasy. Yeah. Tech. And, and just, just go, go for it. And, and it works. It seems yeah. to be like we're, we're a long, I mean, we are, we're, we're a decade and a year, but we're a long ways away from, the Brian Singer shying away from the comic bookness or like, well, we want it to look goofy. We don't want it to be too colorful. Right. And this is a goofy, mm-hmm. colorful movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this was like kind of one of the earlier examples of that where, you know, at the end when you get the Kirby costumes, that was like a big deal. We were like, oh, wow, we're seeing real superhero costumes yeah. on screen. And, yeah. And Den of Geek, Vaughn mentioned that he felt as a fan of superhero movies. You know, not being the kind of director who like picked, you know, puts his nose up at it. Right. But he's like, I go see these movies with my kids and he's like, I have a lot of fun with them. But again, this is like 2011. It feels like they're kind of in a creative rut and I'm worried they might not survive. Mm -hmm. So he goes into this movie like I need to shake it up. I think this genre needs like a shot of adrenaline. Right. Yeah, he was right. This wouldn't be it, however. It would be the Avengers the next year. But <laughs> but he was right. He was ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah. He was ahead of his time. wrong. Yeah. Then we get our first of two montages in this movie that are long. Uh, the second one is super long. I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's, it's basically act three. Yeah. Yeah. But this first one of... Eric and Charles going around and collecting the mutants. This is where we get our our awesome Wolverine cameo that Mm -hmm. I remember everyone in the theater losing their minds over. You know when a movie listener has like, oh, they thought this was going to get a really big laugh because they just cut to like the actor standing still for 10 seconds? Yeah. This is like one of the rare times that you actually needed him just sitting there for like five seconds let the audience collect themselves yes it was huge it was a huge reaction in the theater i remember uh jackman was quoted saying this is like the most secrecy he's ever had to keep for anything that he's done yeah one day the reason he didn't tell anyone about it for so long is he was convinced it was going to get cut oh he was looking around he was like this is a bloody shit show i don't know it's kind of uh yeah but no it's it's a great moment in in the scene and i like it because it adds an element of they didn't get everybody they wanted you know like yeah like it's not like they just got everybody that they went to and and, right every mutant that they go contact joins right because i guess that would be like the the first fanboy complaining of like well why wasn't wolverine on the team right he was in a timeline like he said fuck off yeah exactly so we get introduced to angel played by zoe fucking kravitz yep yep um, Angel is an interesting character to put in this for two reasons. One, she shares a name with a much more famous X-Men from the first class. Some would say X-Men. iconic. Yeah, some might say iconic. <laughs> but she is named Angel in the comics. She comes from the Grant Morrison run of New X-Men. And she comes from a generation of mutants that Grant Morrison wanted to feel gross and non-passing. And 
it, it was definitely pushing more into like the body horror idea of mutation. Right, right. And uh, not everyone gets angel wings. Yes, and they definitely did not go that direction with her in this movie. Um, she yeah. was she's kind of like a trailer park girl. And is like she de- she is I think a stripper or a sex worker or something like that in the comics and kind of more like True Blood justified vibes definitely. But her her wings are gross and she has these like wart things all over her. And when she is spitting later, she like spits that acid. She's actually vomiting that up in the comic, and it is disgusting. And that's like part of her thing. And she has like a and it's also like painful for her. It's burning her. Oh, you know, wow. at, at her mutant powers is torture for her yes. as well. Grant Morrison. It, it's a very Grant Morrison yes, idea. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so, Angel in this movie has like beautiful kind of insect-like wings. Yeah. Like, or fairy-like wings that like unfurl. Yeah, she's super chill. Uh, super <laughs> chill. It seems to be a very successful sex worker. Good for her. Uh, but now, you know, she has a, she's hopefully getting a better life with... Uh, How would you like a job where you get to keep your shirt on? Yeah, with Xavier. <laughs> and then later, I guess, in the Brotherhood. But um, This was yeah. definitely like watching this now yeah. in 2021 having like the high fidelity show was yeah. great you know i'm like Whoa. i was just thinking like oh it's catwoman <laughs> <laughs> yeah but definitely like <laughs> under serving who we now like you know zoe kravitz yeah but but she was like fresh at this point right, right? yeah i was like oh it's lenny kravitz's it's, daughter yeah this is like one of her first roles i think and but yeah then we get banshee Played by Caleb Landry Jones. Yes, the the racist brother from Get Out. <laughs> the, well, the super racist, like insanely racist brother from Get Out. <laughs> I go to three billboards. That's oh, I think interesting. Of. Okay, yeah, mm. yeah. He was I, really excited about I, this movie. He was like, "Oh, I get to be like a ginger, skinny superhero." That's yeah, fun. that is cool. Mm-hmm. I I love getting the team together montages. Mm-hmm. Banshee's like use of his power is so bizarre it's, to me. It's definitely it's I think it's kind of the most awkward part of the montage. Yeah. I don't get the where like I'm going to scare some fish with Sonic. What? These fish? Yeah. Psych, it's just a blank empty tank, you dumb idiot. That's what you get for turning me down. Fuck out of here. <laughs> anyway. It, it was like I, I I wish there'd been like another pass on his like revelation of his yeah. powers. I think the, the comic rhythm is off on that. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, then we get Havoc, uh aka Alex Summers. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of Summers. Who is not uh, supposed to be Scott's brother in this, or is? He is. Oh, he is, because in the other ones. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, he he's, sure is. Okay, so he's, like, in a jail cell. So is he, like, significant? Is he not a teenager? Is he, like... I think he is supposed to be a little bit older than the other okay. characters. I don't understand how his powers work in this no, like the discs spinning, and it's almost like he hula hoops these yeah. <laughs> energy waves off of him. Yeah. It's a bizarre visualization of, of the powers, which in the comics is always more like he just sticks out his hands and energy waves shoot yeah. out. And then we get good old Darwin. Good old OP Darwin. Ah, Darwin. <laughs> uh, something that's always, I've, I don't want to say it bugged me, but I've noticed is how like ripped the guy playing Darwin is yeah like under his like just like 60s polyester shirt yeah and like in doing research they were like he for some reason underwent like a super strict like diet workout regime I I, I can't understand why I mean like unless he like didn't have the whole script or even half the, even if he had half the script we'll get to Darwin listeners yeah. don't you worry yeah uh. and he's um a, a convocator who's not uh, so you know Havoc and Banshee are like long-term X, like going back to the 1960s X-Men characters. Uh, Angel, as you noted, was like Grant Morrison creation and Darwin's an Ed Brubaker from early 2000s. I'm trying to remember. Oh, wow. um, So like the most new. 
Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, yeah. I think he's after the Grant Morrison run uh, that Darwin gets introduced, but he gets introduced retroactively into the past of the X-Men, mm-hmm. like inserted in between the 1960s era X-Men and the 1970s era Got X-Men. Got it. So there was precedence to him being in this like era of the universe. Mm-hmm. That's cool. But yeah, we get this great scene with all the X-Kids sort of having fun and naming themselves, naming each other. Like that scene is like in every... Hey, you ought to be called blank. But it's like the most charming laid back version of that. Yeah. And it's blows my mind to think about, but it's like the most teen camaraderie we've gotten from any of these movies yet. Yep. Yep. We actually feel like they're friends yeah. just from this one scene, which most X-Men films forget to remind you that these people like yeah. each other. And <laughs> that they're kids, that they're kids and like yeah. kids would have fun and want to like show off their powers. The joy that they all get showing off their powers it's mm-hmm. something they've never been able to do before. It's just so palpable in this scene and so important to what I think makes Xavier's school special for the mutants that come to it, the mutant students, and we never get that side of it. You know, like Rogue never got to show off her powers. Mm-hmm. Everyone was just mm-hmm. terrified of her. And, and there's she never was... a scene of her like settling into her newfound family. Yeah. Or being able to learn how to use her powers where she can copy someone's powers without killing them, you know? Right. And it's, it's, it's so, like, I just, I, I adore this scene. I absolutely adore this scene. I think it's fantastic. What I don't like so much is the next bit, which I feel like is the lull of the movie, which is Eric and Charles going after Emma. And oh, for sure. That whole section of we, the movie we is... We get really cool double O Eric stuff. That's true. That is true. But, like, in general, I think this is kind of a slow point for the movie. It's the the Canto bite of Last Jedi. <laughs> Where it, well, it all hinges on Emma, and as we talked at length, Emma is given no personality in this. Right. So it yeah. doesn't feel like, oh, they're going after her second in command, or, yeah. you know, Shaw's second in command. Oh, I really like uh, when they open the truck. Yeah. And like, there's nobody back here. And it's like, it's Charles doing them. That, that is good. That is good. Yeah. I, I think even a, I agree with what Scott's saying. Like, this feels like a low energy point and a little divergence from the narrative momentum. Mm-hmm. But there are still like those beats, like Eric running in and sprinting in and using his powers. The barbed like, wire. So yeah. aggressively. Yeah. Okay. That like, that works. Even if as a whole, this doesn't all feel necessary. Right. right. And, but the, the thing that they find out is basically Sebastian Shaw's plan to manipulate two armies into starting World War III. Heath believes that because they're the children of the atom, they would survive a nuclear holocaust and that on the other side of that, only mutant kind would survive and all of humanity would be dead. Mm. So that's his plan. So that's what they learn. Matthew Vaughn did not know what the Cuban Missile Crisis was before getting the script. He mm-hmm. just, he like, I didn't learn it in the UK in school. Upon learning about it for the movie, he was like, this is almost better than reality. I wish it was just a crazy supervillain <laughs> and not like these two countries almost just like... Wiped out humanity. Yeah, for like ego and power and <laughs> yep. bullshit. But. So then we cut back to the base and Azazel's attack on the base and Sebastian Shaw's attack on the base. It's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. Uh, it's the death of Oliver Platt. Um, and then, unfortunately, the very, very quick death of Darwin, which is yeah. the most I've ever wanted to rage quit a movie that I was really enjoying up to that point. Yeah. Because you, it, I, I understand the instinct of, like, the, the sort the, of um, shortcut 
instinct of a writer being like, oh, we'll get the mutant that has the power to adapt to anything and to show that Sebastian Shaw is a guy you don't want to mess with. We'll have him kill the guy who can't be killed. And then that's how you'll know that Sebastian Shaw is a powerful dude. But unfortunately, you cast the only black guy as that character and you literally set up the fact that his character can adapt to anything. And then all you do is have Sebastian Shaw say, adapt to this. And put like an energy ball in his mouth. And then it's all over. I was like, Kevin Bacon's definitely having fun. I, I don't know what Sebastian Shaw's powers are supposed to be so much in this film. Yeah. Like it's left a little <laughs> hand wavy as to what everything is. And in this instance, I'm making a ball of energy that will retain its force until you swallow it. I guess they describe uh, it as like yeah, he absorbs yeah. kinetic energy and then is able to. Like, and, and can re- redirect yeah, and that's it. Like why and I- in the comics, usually it's just muscle mass and strength yes. like he becomes stronger the more you you, you fight yeah. him and this it's vague energy powers too. yeah i think he says at one point i can absorb all of that energy and then i can do whatever i want with it cool. i think it's how they <laughs> wave it away and, and yeah it it just sucks the joy right out of the movie yep mm-hmm. we just saw this great moment where they were all bonding mm-hmm. and like he puts his head in the fish tank look i can survive this even. yeah and yeah come at me with any storytelling like Oh, the cost, or we had to bullshit. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, we've been like singing this movie's praises. And yet, like, when I hear people, like, yeah, I turned it off after Darwin died and never looked back, I'm like, yeah, like, good on you. Real talk, real talk, it should have been Havoc. Yeah. Guy's boring. He's a boring character. He offers nothing to the overarching story other than being a bully. Yeah, bullies Hank for his big feet. You don't really need his powers in no. the end. Like it's not like his powers saved the day no. or anything. That's who they should have gotten rid of. That's absolutely who they should have and, gotten rid of because then Darwin could have gotten into the nuclear tank with Sebastian Shaw. That could have been part of their plan. Is that he can mm-hmm. get in there and survive. You know, the Darwin. way that Yeah, cuz he's Darwin, cuz he can survive anything. Uh, yeah. Anyway. It's and it yeah, and, and I think this is one example where like the long tradition of pop culture is a problem with this yeah. choice, right? To to kill the black character first, yeah. right? The thematic goals of X-Men comic books, particularly from the 70s on to address racial issues, makes this choice a bad yes. choice. Like like every every layer that, that you start to peel back is like it just makes it a worse choice. The the individual character's power set that you're killing off makes this a yeah. bad choice. Like I don't know where why this choice is what was made cuz I can't find a good reason for this to have yeah. been what what ends up on I screen. think it just seems to I guess to give the filmmakers credit at best it feels like ignorance of like it wouldn't dawn on these white filmmakers right. of boy I bet this would really bum out everyone who's not white watching the movie or you know even the you know what I mean like everyone yeah. well yeah because it's not even well, I- <laughs> it's not even that they killed Darwin it's that they killed Darwin and then the only other black character bails like goes with the yeah. bad guys and individually that's one of the cool things I like about X-Men mm-hmm. is that like good guys and bad guys are often like teams of your friends yeah and I think the movie does an adequate job of setting up Angel's, you know, she gets harassed by the, like, the fed goons. Yeah. And she's like, God, I felt more of, like, a human when I had my clothes on. Right. It's kind of for the same reasons Pyro left, but all of these reasons just, it leaves this very ugly stain in a really fun movie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas if she had bailed, but, like, Havoc had died... That's a totally different story. Then I suddenly have no issues with what just transpired. It's the fact that when Xavier and Charles come back... And they're like, what happened? And they're just looking at five white kids. It's just like, <laughs> God. <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> it, and it, it's, a, it's a, these three things happened like within five minutes of each other. Yeah. Yes, exactly. 
It's a huge bummer. It really is a huge bummer. And yeah, it's definitely the stain on this movie and the reason why you can't, I, I just can't elevate it to like an A movie for me. It's a B plus. Mm-hmm. And the only reason is because they killed Darwin. Um, it's, <laughs> oh God, I hate well, it. Well, then also Angel Leaving. Yeah, yeah, right. And like the, this is not in any way true to the 1960s X-Men comic, which was a team of white people. Like right. the original 1960s X-Men, it was all white right. people. And it's not until the 70s that you start to uh, get characters of color right. added in. But they've already very well established. We're not worried about fidelity to those 1960s X-Men. Like we want some of the feel of the 60s, but we're doing none of the, you know, the Beast is the only cast member that's there, right. <laughs> you know, in the original right. X-Men. Yeah, right. uh, so, so so we're playing around so much. Why do we end up with the team of white people? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I really, I really, I just I just don't know. Okay, so the American missiles are set up in Turkey. The Russian missiles are headed for Cuba. Mm-hmm. We're, we're heading for a crisis, one might say. And then <laughs> that's when they decide, like, okay, if we're going to fight, we have to train. And then we get the longest training montage I, I think <laughs> that has ever been put in a movie. Yeah. I mean, this is like 20 minutes it Vaughn, feels like Vaughn refers to this as a four act movie yeah with the them training being act three and the Cuba being act four wow and he's like that was really the most difficult part in the writing process is reigniting the audience's energy after like a because the training sequence has like cathartic moments yeah of resolution yeah and then to bring it like and now they gotta go to Cuba yeah yeah well, get a little fist pump when that's like we have nowhere to go and Charles is like I do yeah, <laughs> that's the original purpose of Charles's school is like they have nowhere else to go. But yep. here's a safe space. Yep. I do love that. Yeah. I mean, it's a really fun sequence. It is and, and, the best part of the movie. Yeah, very well could be. I, I really, really enjoy it. It is just so long. Uh, <laughs> it is. It is so long. And and I love training sequences. Like I actually, I I think every I know it's like a trope of superhero movies. It's a trope I don't mind to Mm -hmm. have the like getting to know your powers. I I just you know your one critique is pretty valid. It's (laughs) it's the uh, it's the most it's the part of the movie that reminds me the most of the Incredibles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of and yeah, like we've never gotten this before. We've never gotten Charles the teacher. Yeah. It's true. We get him like wrapping up, like who's read the Once and Future King? Yeah, but I will say it is like as I think back through like each character and like what we learn about them, it is still a little thin on like uh, you know Alex Summers. Yeah, okay, he's he's learning to use his powers a little bit more, but we don't actually know anything about him as a person. uh, You know that that we don't at the beginning. We do for like Charles and Magneto, um, and a a little bit for Mystique and uh, you know Banshee a little bit, but not not very much at all. Still a little bit of a cipher. It's very power centric and not so much. We don't get more of them bonding the way we did at the military base, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. So yeah, so in all of this, you know, Beast. Running fast? That's interesting. I didn't know that was one of his powers. That feels like a new thing that they just invented. Like really fast. I wonder if that's going to come up ever again in really key moments of the film. No. No, because no, they're going to introduce Quicksilver and therefore negating the fact that Beast can run real fast. That may very well be the only scene where Beast runs real fast. Yeah. I think it is. Uh, it did give me uh, Captain America Winter Soldier yep. vibes. Yep. Big big on your left vibes. Absolutely. All right, I guess Captain America Winter Soldier gives me... yeah. X-Men first class vibes. I right. I, uh, I love, I love them pushing Banshee out the window. Yeah. And he just eats shit. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and like catching the little differences between Charles and Eric's mentoring. Yes. Of Eric is like, just push him out the window. 
don't mm-hmm. baby them. Talk yeah. to them like they're adults. Because they're they're both leaders, right? These are going to be leaders of the mutant movement. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so to see, you know, same goal, different styles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, Eric, Eric like drops the, the dumbbell on Raven and she has to turn off, you know, and he's like, boom, that's what you got to do to survive. Yeah. Yeah. She has to, she has to turn off her, her powers mm-hmm. and go back to blue mystique. Yeah. Um, in order to focus. Yeah. So then after all of that, we get Hank's mutant serum. Which he took Mystique's blood to help use it because he was like, oh, your blood will be the key to this. So I really like this because it explains why he's blue. Mm, yeah. I really like that. That's like, true. That's what's yeah. clean. It's a really mm-hmm. clean way to explain why he's blue. And also the fact that like her power is to transform. So I need your blood because that power will help us be able to transform. Yes. Normal. Yeah. Um, it works It's well very clean. It's very clean and very mm-hmm. good. Um, has the satellite scene happened yet? Yeah, that happened in the montage. Yeah. Uh, highlight of the series, maybe. Oh, really? Okay. I yeah. fucking love that scene. I yeah. think beautiful performances yeah. from both of them. Yeah. And yeah, Charles teaching Eric, like, no, who told you that you have to use use rage? Love is, is just a... It does what I think a prequel should do, is it augments future scenes of the movie. Like, when Eric moves the san francisco bridge right there's a little bit of mm-hmm. charles in him and like the way that he learns how to use his powers yeah exactly yeah that's the i bet it would be really rewarding to watch this uh, whole series in chronological order and see every piece fit so perfectly uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as they snap ab- together like a, like a swiss watch <laughs> like a swiss watch perfectly planned from the beginning uh, so yeah, so then uh, Hank offers the serum to Raven, and she turns it down because she's realized that she shouldn't have to change. Mutant and and, and, and Hank proud. is yeah, mut- mutant and proud. And Hank is just like, no, well, I'm <laughs> I don't need you. I'll do it myself. And then just like goes on himself, shoots himself up, and then turns blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Mystique is like, you know what? I'm gonna go get laid. And that just goes. <laughs> I and might visits, die tomorrow. Yeah, it goes and visits Eric's room. Uh, so in the script. It's detailed that, you know, she's in bed and Charles is like, you know, you're not my type. And she goes, is this Eric? Yeah. Uh, yeah, my bad. <laughs> and then Mystique's like, is this your type? And in the script, it says she transforms into a famous 60s actress. Oh. Like a, a um, Brigitte Bardot. Okay. And so it was Vaughn's idea to drop in the Rebecca Romaine cameo. Easiest work she ever did on on a X Men movie. That's for sure, <laughs> by a country mile. I was this got a fun reaction from the audience when I saw it. Yeah, and it was cool. You know what got a fun reaction from me? This watching it this time, that goddamn meme. Oh, absolutely. That meme, the the perfection, perfection. meme, has just taken over this scene. And so when it happens, yeah. it's just like I feel like if you went to like a midnight screening of this movie, yeah. like at some point people in the future, that would happen, and people would just be like, "Wow!" Like that it. would be the thing. <laughs> and it's the man yeah. I, I didn't know that was from this <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's where it's from that old yeah. movie x-men first class oh man and yeah. the next scene she comes out fully blue and charles is like whoa hey hey that bad not good <laughs> like, fuck you then Girl, girlfriend nakey no 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 sister nakey like yeah. sister to charles not girlfriend sister <laughs> i just can i circle back to one thing i just want to touch on with a uh, beast shooting himself up with yeah. the serum we talked some about like the different versions of beasts that exist and this kind of like self-loathing uh, insecure beast it makes sense for him to do it but i think it would also make sense for the super arrogant beast who's so confident that he's cracked <laughs> cracked the the mutant right, yeah. to shoot himself up it totally would have worked yeah, too yeah. For sure. <laughs> I think in general, Nicholas Holt's beast needed a little more arrogance. 
I, I think that's definitely the aspect of his character that's missing. And that sucks because, like, you know, on that show, The Great, he is, like, ego incarnate. Yeah. And is, like, so great in that show. Yeah. Intended. So all that happens, and then we find out that he made costumes for them. They put the costumes on, and then we meet Beast, which, you know, he's, he's given that name by Havoc, right? His best friend, Hank. Yeah. 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 It's, I guess it's better than Bozo. <laughs> yeah. Or Bonzo. So, so he gets the name Beast. And yeah, this is a big wolf. Um, this makeup is bad. He looks like he can barely move his mouth. Because he can barely move his mouth, his entire, the rest of his role, the rest of the movie is really bad ADR. And it's it's rough and not, it's, I I was so disappointed in the theater because I was so excited to see Beast fully realized and like, yeah. Nope. The, the, uh, <laughs> as far as the design process, Vaughn didn't want to mimic any particular animal. Mm. So they were like, just put animal makeup over Nicholas Holt. Uh, nope. If I'm being charitable, <laughs> it kind of gives me like Lon Chaney were Wolfman vibes. Sure, but that. But I'd still want more fur uh, if that's what they were going to go. Yeah, for. well, and also like if that's what they're going for, I fine, I guess. But that was also like a hundred years ago. Like you know, like yeah, yeah. that's me. Like <laughs> it should be better. Reminds yeah. me of this thing that I like. But yeah, hundred percent what you said. It, it it miraculously it drains even more personality from Hank in this movie. Yep. Every line delivery is like we have to go over there. It's very monotone. There's a missile coming. Yeah, it it feels like he doesn't know how to voice act the makeup. The the animal roars are just straight up. Someone just like dropped in like an ADR tiger snarl. Yeah, like went mm-hmm. to the zoo and recorded something. Yeah. It makes me wonder like were there maybe different acting choices as far as like is my voice going to change now that my my body is transformed and they they never quite committed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to, I, to, to I also wonder if, if move his face. It's, yeah, yeah. Well, see I I almost wonder if it's a case of like Bane where mm. he made a choice on set and that was going to be the choice and then in test screenings everyone was like maybe they were like I don't know what he's saying I Something can't understand went him. wrong with the serum it didn't work yeah and like yeah maybe he <laughs> sounds like that and then maybe he went back and they made him you know ADR away his uh, his accent that he was using or whatever it was <laughs> yeah the growl or yeah. you know whatever it yeah. was yeah yeah um, and it doesn't get better unfortunately no uh, in some ways it gets worse Honestly, although doesn't Beast have like seventies hair in the next one? He's like shaggier for sure. That's cool. I, I, maybe I like that. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. But uh, I really like the X Jet stuff. Yeah. No, it's really good. It's really good. That's another thing. I think this. I think making it practical was a mistake. Unfortunately, I think they should have just went motion capture. You know, CGI Beast. I think that's probably what they should have done instead of practical Beast because it just doesn't look good. It doesn't. Like, if you can't make it work, do over it. You oh, know what I mean? Just a tidbit I just remembered is the guy that plays Havoc. I can't think of his name right now. He was offered both Havoc and Beast. Oh, and interesting. He, he was like, it was like, they were like, hey, just so you know, you're between these two. And he said, straight up, if I'm Hank, don't cast me. Whoa. Because, like, I already can tell. I already know about myself. Lucas Till. Lucas Till. Thank you. He was like, I everything I've learned, I'm not going to be able to handle that makeup process. I'm not going to do it. Whoa. So, like, just don't cast me if, if it's Hank. Wow. He's very jockey. Got a big jock energy. That might have be been even, even even more off the mark. than That would have been very weird. Yeah, the idea of a Hank like that, like, shoves people in lockers is, like, really weird. That's uh, me, Hank McCoy. <laughs> the biggest bully on campus. The beast, they call me. 
Um, so yeah, so all of this happens, and then uh, here's an interesting thing. This is just a note that I that sure. I, I, I took. They're doing the flying thing. They're mm-hmm. in the X jet, and I think it's havoc that tells Beast. He goes, Hank. He goes, open the pod bay doors, Hank, and like making a reference to 2001. Mm-hmm. This is 1962. 2001 doesn't come out until 1968. So what is he making a reference to? <laughs> yeah. Just a dumb, yeah, like, just, yeah. I let yeah. me push my glasses up and be a real nerd about it. But like, I'm just saying. You're talking oh. shit. Happened. Yeah. The, the timeline broke down in an X-Men film. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think watching this whole sequence is really bittersweet to now because I love this team so much. And like you get such a cathartic, like when Banshee is like using his echo powers to echo, like we don't have any. Yeah, we do. We have radar. Yeah. Like oh, they're working together, and like this just gets wiped off the face of the earth in the next movie. Yeah. Yeah, and and I thought they found some really good. I I mean, that may be one reason why they have havoc is like just for the visual element. Uh, It doesn't work for me as well what they do with his powers, but like the way they are able to visualize Banshee's powers, Mm -hmm. it, it definitely works. His flying fight that we're gonna have coming up, like I was actually like really yeah. impressed with the dog fight yeah. really like the dog aspect fight. of that. I'm like, oh wow, they've they've cracked yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, which flying in superhero films is not always. Going it almost well. kind of vindicates uh, Angel's heel turn because you do get that really cool dog fight flying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when she gets the spit. Very true. It. Okay, so I'm just gonna talk about this segment kind of in general. Sure. I think because we're in the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm not gonna go through this beat for beat, but in general, you've got. A Russian general, you got American general. Played by Michael Ironside. Yep, Darkseid himself. And they are, I, I like it because they're both like, are we about to go to war? Because they've manipulated Azazel to like take over one of the Russian ships to move into a space where it's not supposed to be. And if it moves into that space, then the Americans are going to fire and mm. it's going to start a war. And it's really good manipulation. It's really well thought out. It's very tense. I like all of that a lot and I also really like that they all turn on the mutants right <laughs> at the end where they're just <laughs> all like shit finally it's it's like the end of Watchmen where they're all like we have something to reunite against there's the other kill yeah. it and then they just they all <laughs> unite to kill the mutants I mean in their defense these mutants did just try and start World War 3 at least from their point of, from what they know right yeah. now right. Yeah. You yeah. Know, Shaw's- they literally were just about to get us to start a nuclear war against each you know ourselves right, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So Shaw is like sucking up the energy of the nuke because he's going to nuke everything. Is that what's going to happen? It it starts to get a little strange here. What's going to happen here at the end. Yeah. But in general, the thing that I love is Eric hunting Shaw and then taking his helmet so that Xavier can't know what he's about to do. Mm -hmm. Can't stop him. God, I love that so much. It is. Mm -hmm. It's such a good payoff. To a stupid setup with the dumb helmet, Shaw's dumb helmet, <laughs> dumb Magneto helmet, mm-hmm. but it rules. It's so good. And then the the coin callback, this whole movie, he's been flipping around that coin and, you know, knowing exactly what he's going to use it for mm-hmm. one day. And it is horrifying seeing that coin go so slowly, but so solidly through Shaw's head. It's messed up. It's real messed it's pretty up. Pretty brutal for a PG thirteen. Yeah, it reminds me of yeah. in Ex Machina when she stabs that guy with the knife mm-hmm. and it just goes in like butter because she's a robot. There's no strain. It's just in push yeah. in, and it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it reminds me of that where it's like, oh yeah, he's using magnet powers. There is no strength involved in this. Mm-hmm. It's just 
slices right through. Yeah, it, it, like you said, it for a PG thirteen movie, it is. I mean, it's almost bloodless as far as the death. Like there's blood on the coin at the very yeah. end, but it's also so horrifying yeah. for a PG thirteen mm-hmm. movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> like like it's doing both those things simultaneously to be like you know fairly clean in terms of the actual violence, but what the audience knows is happening is so violent. Yeah, right. It's kind of like even more unsettling because it, it's it's so vividly you can imagine it happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we get the showdown at the island with Eric turning the missiles around at the humans. Mm-hmm. The standoff. And, and the whole idea of Charles being like, it's not their fault. They were just following orders. And that's like the worst thing he could have said. It's like his trigger. And he's just like, all my life, I've been at the mercy of men following orders. And it's like, oof. That's so good. Like, it's such a good line. It's such a good Magneto line. Because the the thing that makes Magneto such a perfect villain is, you know, you understand where he's coming from. And you understand his perspective. And he's not wrong, you know? God, it rules so much. I love this ending. What do we think about how Xavier becomes paralyzed? Uh, Fox, through the writing process of the drafts after drafts, were, like, really zeroing in on the Charles-Eric relationship. And was like, this is the juice. Yeah. This is what we really want you to hit in the movie. And Matthew Vaughn was like, the guys, they know each other for three fucking weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And so reckoning both of that in the movie was something that he struggled with. Yeah. Of how do I pay off this relationship to where by the end of the movie, they are kind of in their preordained destined spots. But how do we make that journey meaningful? You know, with stuff like the satellite scene or... Right the mm-hmm. sweeping romance of so much of their scenes together. Right. Well, even I, I think in terms of that, like the montage, I think plays a trick with the audience. Like, I think in real time, this is like two days of practice. That There's they have, a hu- but it feels like this could be weeks and months and they've now perfected. There is hours, an absolutely like- <laughs> hilarious line at the end of the montage where it's Hank and, and Raven and Jennifer Lawrence is like, wow, we, we've learned so much this week. <laughs> yeah. and, and so it does feel like like their 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 friendship and their bond for the audience feels like it's longer than it is, I, is narratively supposed to i was it. so like taken aback watching this in the theater for the first time of like oh we're we're, we're doing this yeah because i thought we were gonna get like two three movies of just this crew right. leading up to the big breakup yeah I, well mm-hmm. and i don't know why because I, I i don't mind that they're breaking up here what I don't like is Charles getting paralyzed here. It's a little Last Crusade, like, it all happened on this one mission. Yeah, and it's too, it's just too early. It's like, you cast McAvoy, like, why? You can you can have Xavier get paralyzed at any point, you know? It's like you Han can, going to Tokyo. The, the best way to do it, I feel like, is have people forget that it's an inevitability, right? So you you go, like two or three movies and then it just happens and everyone's like oh my god it happened like like why am i surprised yeah why am i surprised oh my god i forgot like that's normal i feel like that's what it should have been and doing it this early just feels forced it's weird that in in interviews vaughn seems so excited about even like signing on to the movie he was like i get to start a new franchise mm-hmm. i get to wipe the slate clean and get these new characters and yet the movie seems in such a rush to get to the year 2000. Yeah. Of yeah. kind of stunting itself before it's even over. Yeah. I mean, I do remember seeing it in a theater and like, I remember the audience shock sure. when Xavier goes yeah. down. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think within this sequence, the moment definitely does land. But when you step back and, and think about like, what was the plan? Like if, if they were buying these scripts and thinking this is going to be a three, three movie, you know, franchise. Right. It does feel right. Like it feels like that should be 
happening later, like an Empire Strikes Back right. moment, you know, like Luke losing his hand, right. you know, that that's when that should be happening, not right, right here. Yeah, take it on its own. It's incredibly powerful, and I think everyone plays it really well. And yeah. like, the the sound drop when like his back snaps is so wrenching, and yeah. there when like Eric is holding Charles in his arms and. He's like, we want the same thing. And Charles is like, no, we don't, man. Yeah. We're really different people. And like, you, it's kind of the most you're ever on board with Charles of like, mm-hmm. yeah, wow, they're really not. And two We're, ships, two ships passing. The night. Yeah. It's almost like Magneto was focusing so much of his anger on his powers that when Charles taught him to not use anger in his powers and he would be able to do more, he refocused that anger outward. At like everything else. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then that's where we get where we are at the end of this movie, which I think is really interesting because that is sort of fundamentally the difference between the two of them, right? Uh, philosophically or, or whatever, mm-hmm. is that Magneto is a more angry person, more mm-hmm. angry about the world and the way that they're treated. Dominance and supremacy as mm-hmm. opposed to coexisting. Right, exactly. So I think it's good. I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think it is well played, like you said. I just feel like it's happening too early, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's fully earned. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like we've said over and over again today, this is a soap opera, right? I, I do. While we're talking about this, this like final Cuba sequence, I do think it it like is on the cusp of becoming comical how often the rockets drop and they get picked up again <laughs> yeah. and almost <laughs> yeah, to the ships sure. it's like, a <laughs> um, like oh we're saved oh no we're doomed oh we're yeah. saved oh, no. <laughs> speaking of inevitability we get Raven's heel turn <laughs> right right you, and I which right. I also think happens way too early because it when I watch like stacking on top of you know other. what it was I go into this movie and I'm starting <laughs> it off and I'm thinking like okay this is the start of a new series of X-Men movies this is a reboot and then you get to the end of the movie and you're like, oh, no, this was just a single serving prequel. Like, that was that was it. There, there yeah, are no, no like, other movies. Like, like all the, everyone's on the sides that we found them in the 2000 right. X-Men Right. Like, film. you have first class and then it's like, oh, yeah, that was the prequel to X-Men. There you go. You're done. And they did that until the year 2000. <laughs> yep. Right. Exactly. Like, you don't need to fill in any <laughs> gaps at yeah. that point. And that's the bummer. And I think that's the problem that they end up running into in the sequels. Now, granted, the next sequel is very good because of the way that they manipulate the timeline and use that to their advantage. But then the reason that I think they run out of story in the subsequent ones is because of the trap that they set themselves here. And what I'll say about Days of Future Past, a movie I haven't revisited recently. Me either. It is a fantastic sequel to Brian Singer's X-Men movies. It's like, if we're being generous, half a sequel to X-Men First Class. Yeah, that's true. That is true. It's like, yeah, it's a weird one. This is a weird one. Also, I'm not crazy about how they wrap up Moira. Yeah, the the memory wipe kiss. Yeah. yeah, this is why just Women like don't Superman. Belong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that's a go to move in superhero movies. Is is the 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 kiss that wasn't really built towards? Like, I didn't sense a real romantic connection no. between it, Charles and Moira. It almost feels like the kiss was so she he could wipe her, her memory, and right. that's sketchy as hell. Yes. Well, yeah. he's. He's a jerk. Established. <laughs> He's a jerk. He's a jerk. <laughs> um, One of the most famous lines in any X-Men comic is Professor Xavier is also, a jerk. Also, again, I, I almost forgot about this until I looked at it. It's in my notes. So I need to correct myself because the fantastic payoff of the Magneto helmet of like, oh, I'm going to put this on and now he can't see what I'm doing mm-hmm. when I'm going to kill Shaw, et cetera, et cetera. He can't stop me. That payoff makes that better. The actual worst prequelitis thing in this movie is it's like you're G-Men, only you're not. 
you're Xavier. That's Fill in not, the gaps. And yeah, I'm that like, was, oh, boy. Really? That's how we're doing it? So you're G-Men G, G equals X-Men? Like, I, it was, that was... Yes, I like that more. Right? They're like woof. my spies. Yeah. That was, that was a big old woof. I don't know. I'm not... So here's the thing. G-Men uh, without the G. So speaking of prequelitis... Yes. Like the kind of coda, I guess, of the movie, not a coda, the final scene, mm-hmm. is that we cut back, Emma Frost is in jail, just sitting there, <laughs> pouting, head empty. Yeah. And then Magneto comes in. If only she had some power that she could use <laughs> yeah. to get someone to get her out of that yeah. cell. If only. Well, she even, she does the thing where she like meddles up and then she like does the Catwoman window thing. Oh yeah, the diamond effect. Like, yeah. Are we yeah. done talking? Like, why are you here? So Eric comes, like, call me Magneto because it's the the silly name that mystique gave me after remember because like way back like we give everyone nicknames when the kids were all bonding you're professor x and you're magneto (laughs) yeah and that i don't know it's weird that that's where his name i don't know well yeah that's true i think that there is power in him only referring to himself as magneto now because that's the name that he gives himself that's his mutant name yes and so it's it's sort of like the concept of the slave name what's your real name yeah and so, like, I yeah. like, I do like that, but I don't think it's paid off in a way that feels satisfying in any way. It's like, just you sort of remembered that. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just came up with that on on the fly. You don't have to name yourself that. I'm calling myself Magneto Raven, and then she doesn't get it. Yeah, she doesn't get the callback. Oh, cool. <laughs> Remember, you you named me. I was a little drunk. I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I'm not crazy about the suit. I love that it's red. I love yeah. the color, but I don't know. It looks like a he looks like a turtle. Yeah, a little bit. But yeah, she breaks out Emma Frost for all the adventures they'll have in future films. Oh wait, <laughs> we're never going to see her again. <laughs> what a I will say. What a final scene. The part, what a tease. The part in the episode earlier where I learned that Singer just read Josh Schwartz's script and was like, "Cool," throws it over his shoulder. Yeah really was like a sign of things to come as far as Days of Future Past. Oh, interesting. Okay. Like, cool movie. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, that'll be... I'll we'll be, see. I'll be curious to hear about that in a couple of weeks. Right. For sure. <laughs> Joe, thank you for joining us to talk about First Class. Oh. Happy to do so. And despite the issues, which I think are valid, yeah. that, that we've identified in terms of some some pacing moments and also, you know, what happens to the characters of color, this is still like a fun yeah. movie. Overall. Oh, it really is. And, uh, Extremely and watchable uh, is what I would call it. Some of the best superpower fight sequences, like really that that a- Banshee Angel yeah. fight, I was like, oh, we've got superpowers on screen yeah. in a way that feels visceral and physical and not wider acting. Yeah, <laughs> That's, yeah Cuba feels so exhilarating because it really f- captures what was fun about the comics of like the rock, paper, scissors, powers back and forth. Yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I know it's 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 a lot of fun despite my quibbles, I would say. So Joe, tell people about your podcast, The Protagonist Podcast. Yes, The Protagonist Podcast is a podcast where each week we talk about a great character in a great story and we keep it very eclectic. Mm-hmm. Um the the only premise is we're going to have guests on and we're going to talk about uh characters and stories that they love and and what's great about these stories. So we try and make sure that we're highlighting, you know, uh the great things about creativity and storytelling and the power that those can have for yeah. us. And very recently you had a very special guest on your show that would be relevant to uh the the episode <laughs> at hand. 
Yes, I was uh, very fortunate to be able to have Chris Claremont come on to talk about Storm uh, of the X-Men and his career writing X-Men comic books and his ideas behind storytelling and writing. And uh, it was just a delight to have, um, you know, one of, I I mean, really the legendary X-Men writer and and one of the legendary comic book creators on to to talk about, um, you know, the the definitive take on, you know, on, on the X, like if, if you're thinking of X-Men, you're probably thinking of something that is at least building on Chris Claremont, yes. if not the actual Chris Claremont yes, run. Absolutely. So great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Everybody check out the protagonist podcast. Uh, you can find that at duallygenre.com or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, if you want to support us and our show, you can go to, and uh, other shows on Dueling Genre. Support us at duelinggenre.com slash support. That is our Patreon. That's where you will get all of the bonus shows that we do every week, like Dueling Genre Tonight, where we talk about the week's entertainment news um, and talk about like our hot takes on this stuff. And also like movie reviews. And we did a movie review of uh, F9. We're doing one for Black Widow. I think that would be out by now by the time you're hearing this so so yeah we're we're doing all those things so um you know check those things out and help us keep the lights on over here at uh franchiseography we appreciate everyone who's already doing that uh duelinggenre.com slash support as for as little as three dollars a month and uh, the most that we ask for is five dollars a month and that's when you get everything uh at five dollars a month really not that much it's three bonus podcasts a week at $5 a month? That's a lot of podcasts. I don't know. But check it out. Duelinggenre.com slash support. Follow us on Twitter at Franchiseography to vote in future polls. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week with The Wolverine. Bye, everybody. Mutant. And proud.